literally in the case of one of the legends matches which pits past year uh, which pits past star zero <laughs> wow Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by someone who has the option to become the person that gets the chance to host this episode with me, Alec Pridgen. I think I'll exercise that option. <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? It's going, it's going good. It's going good. We have finished our third series. Wow. Slamboree. And actually, we just hit another milestone as well. And really? Do you know when we first started Let's Go to the Ring? I don't recall the exact date now. We released our first episode, Starcade 83, in September of 2018. Oh, wow. So not only have we been at this for three series, but we've been at this for three years. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So tonight, I thought it'd be fun to do a little bit more of a look back. So we're going to be looking back at Slamboree, playing some of our usual guessing games and handing out some awards, but I thought it might also be fun to take a look at some stats from across our entire run so far. All right. Now, one note, though we covered it as part of the Slamboree series, none of the stats tonight will include Ready to Rumble. It's a movie, not a wrestling show. All our stats and awards concern the actual Slamboree series and other wrestling shows that we've covered in some cases, not the movie. Let's be honest, what awards were we really going to give that movie? <laughs> Not any of the good ones, let's put it that way. No, no, none of the good ones. So let's talk about some of Slamboree's stats. All right. Slamboree ran from 1993 through 2000, covering a total of eight shows. So, Al, you have any guesses on what the number one Slamboree was in terms of pay-per-view buys? I feel like timeline-wise, it's got to be 97, just because that's like their peak year, right? You're close, oh. but not quite right. In fact, 1997 is in third place oh. with 165,000. Interesting. In second place is 1999 oh. with 170,000. And in first place is in 1998 with 250,000. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Starcade 97 is their highest show ever, obviously. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That's 640 something. Yeah, it's, it's some insane number. Yeah. So. They steadily climb through 97 up mm -hmm. to Starcade 97, and then yeah. they benefit from that for most of 98, and then they come back down. So that's, I think you can see really yeah. diagrammed here that 97 is, is pretty good, 99 is pretty good, and 1998 is the one that really, really hits the peak in this one. And to be fair, 97, while it is in their peak year, obviously building up to that show... It's not really presented as a must-watch show as far as stories. You know, like the big title matches, you're not guaranteed like sting appearance, that kind of stuff. So I can right. see why that didn't quite peak as high. Exactly. I think that's that's a good reason for it. Yeah, It's hitting the, the strong build-up period, but it hasn't hit the, oh my gosh, we absolutely have to see this level that they hit uh, in the latter stages of the NWO run. Right. At this point, they probably have a very high floor and an even higher ceiling. Yeah. So you got any guess for uh, what the bottom 
show was? I mean, it's got to be 2000, right? <laughs> you would be correct. Number three is Slamboree 1996. That's about right. With 110,000. Number two is a tie. Slamboree's 1994 and 1993 each got 100,000. Hmm. And number one is Slamboree 2000, which got an abysmal 52,000. Oof. What was 99 again? Mr. 99 Kerr? was 170,000. Wow. That's less than a third. Less than a third. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The series took place across eight different arenas in seven different states, as one state, Missouri, got two shows, ah. but in two different arenas, which was interesting. Huh. The top three slamborees in terms of attendance. You got to guess on what the number one slamboree for... In-person attendance was? Uh, ooh. I feel like I'll go and get in trouble again guessing 97, but that seemed like a solid guess. But maybe 98, if that's the highest number for views anyways. All right. Number three is Slampery 97. Oh, okay. Has 9,643. Number two is Slampery 98. Ah. With 11,592. And number one... Is Slamboree 1999. Oh, really? With 20,516. Proof that there is zero connection between attendance and actual show quality right there. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> so, and the bottom three. What do you think for the uh, the worst attended show? Um, I feel like it's probably based on how wrestling in general was. So probably like 94, 95. Because that was low time for them. All right. Let's see. The third place. Slamboree 93 got 7,008. Oh. Very specific number. It is. In second place is Slamboree 1995 with 7,000, which may just be rounded. Yeah, similarly. <laughs> and actually, what's interesting is four of the eight Slamborees got between seven and 8,000 in uh, in-person attendance. Huh. And finally, in first place is indeed Slamboree 1994 with 4,000. The Slamborees varied in terms of matches, from as few as 7 to as many as 15, Oof. which is too many. Let's just agree on that. Oh, 100%, yes. However, five of the shows were right in the middle with 9 or 10 matches. Hmm. The top three Slamborees in terms of the number of matches were, in third place, a two-way tie between Slamborees 1997 and 1999 with 9 each. Mm -hmm. In second place, with 10 each, we have a three-way tie. With Slamboree's 1993, 1998, and 2000. That sounds about right, yeah. And in first place, with an unholy 15 <laughs> matches, is Slamboree 1996. Yep. That was so long. It was. <laughs> it's crazy how the time works, because you talked about when we watched the show originally. It's not necessarily that the show is even longer, it's just that, because there's so many matches, it starts and stops, you sort of get in your mind... Like, a match is going to take a certain amount of time, so mm -hmm. when there's so many, you think, man, I've been here for, like, six hours, but you, know, you haven't. Right, yeah, it's not necessarily actually a longer show. There's so much repetition. Right, there's that, too. There's so many matches, and they're so repetitive on that show that it feels so long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you get that with Russo-era Nitros and Thunders. Every segment is, like, three segments. Right. It'd be like a match, someone in the back, and being interviewed, and every single bit... So you just get exhausted watching that. You can't keep up. We've spent the last several months going through the Slamborees show by show, 
and talking about each individual show's traits. Now it's time for us to look at the series as a whole and determine what is Slamboree as a series. What traits or themes stand out? Is there a unified identity to the series or something that unites it as a whole? So, Al, what are your thoughts on this? It's tricky because if you go by the first part of this show, obviously it's the legend reunion aspect, the sort of honoring the past while presenting the future. You get that pretty strong with like 93, where you have these legend matches, then you have Vader and British Bulldog. Mm-hmm. Here's what things going to be like in the 90s now. But then, of course, they drop that after 95. 96 is that unholy battle bowl show. And they never really quite get back on track, I think, as far as a theme for me. I guess you could maybe argue that they sort of get back around in a really indirect way with, like, 2000. Because so much of the last show is the New Blood is trying to replace the Millionaire's Club by, like, and in some cases, literally stealing their gimmicks Mm -hmm. and their looks. So, in a way, it's kind of a meaner version of that because... First one is celebrating the past, and this one is them saying, let's get rid of the past. So Mm -hmm. it kind of takes a turn, I could see, that way. Yeah, I think you've hit on what what I was identifying as well. The general theme, I think, is tradition. Yeah. And each show handles it in a different way. Some shows are about honoring it and supporting it, Mm -hmm. and some shows are about disrespecting it or discarding it. Yeah. Or about the war between those two sides. Mm -hmm. But it all revolves around this concept of tradition and legacy. Yeah. I found it actually quite a fascinating journey for the series. Like you pointed out, it starts with three shows that center around the pinnacle of honor and respect for tradition, Hall of Fame ceremonies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 93, 94, and 95 all feature those ceremonies, and they all feature matches involving older wrestlers popular with fans in the pre-WCW period, yeah. whether we're talking Jim Crockett promotions, the NWA overall, or even other companies like the AWA. Correct, yeah. So they're supporting and honoring wrestling history, and they're giving older stars their time in the limelight once again in the form of matches, promos, and awards. Mm -hmm. But an interesting thing happens along the way. As we go from 93 to 94 to 95, the amount of time dedicated to the older stars starts to fall off. Right. So they start to become more isolated from the rest of the show. In 93 and 94, we get a lot of promos from the stars of yesteryear, sometimes nicely used to build up the stars of the present, Yeah. and sometimes just there to have a good time and show off their classic personas. Oh yeah, for sure. But only 93 dedicates a significant amount of time to matches with only prior era wrestlers. 94 features classic wrestlers, Zabisco, Funk, Blanchard, but Zabisco fights a present performer in the form of Regal. True. And Funk is actually being used prominently in 1994 storylines, so he's combination classic era and modern era wrestler. It's true. In 95, cuts the classic content down to a bare minimum. We barely see the prior era wrestlers outside of the Hall of Fame. We get only the slightest amount of promo time from a couple of them in a single short match. Yeah, I wonder what changed, brother. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So while there's still a sense of honor about it all, one gets the sense that the company wants to move on. Yeah. I suppose you could argue there's a sort of pullback to that a little bit in 95, because if I remember the shows correctly, that has the Paul Orndorff match. Although it's weird, because Paul Orndorff is challenging for the IWGP championship. Yes. It's kind of a weird way to use a legend, because he is being used presently at that point, but he definitely has that notoriety. Mm-hmm. So the war over tradition ends up being reflected in storylines, too. After a 1996 show that 
basically abandons everything the series had done, done up to that point, leaning heavily on the side of change, so much so that it's to the show's detriment. Yes. Though it is at least beneficial in that it gives us the start of the rise of DDP. Mm-hmm. The concept of tradition comes roaring back in 1997, but in storyline rather than show construction. Mm-hmm. 97 establishes a theme that's going to run for the rest of the series, the traditional versus the new. Mm-hmm. In this case, the traditional are the good guys. WCW standing up for respect and order and history of the company and titles that have been around for years, while the new guys, the NWO, are filled with disrespect and disdain for everything that has come before and seek to burn it all down. Yeah. It comes to a head in the main event where tradition wins the day and the NWO suffers a big defeat, though of course the war remains to be settled at a later date and never really is, as we discussed in our Starcade coverage. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> In 1998, we get a fascinating shift. Mm -hmm. The NWO angle is still going, but it's evolved to the point where the NWO has its own microcosm of the overall company conflict going on. So now it's the traditional NWO, the black and white faction, Mm -hmm. versus the wolf pack upstarts in black and red. Yeah, it's true. For all that I'm going to criticize an angle where alignment shift basically based on which t-shirt you're wearing. (laughs) Yeah. It's an interesting shift for the series theme. For the first time, the traditional is portrayed more negatively. And the new, more positively, though it's not a total switch. There's a lot of complexity to it, actually. We have relative newcomers, Nash and Hall, accepted by the crowd, and they're fighting against both long-standing WCW stars and the older stars in their own NWO faction, like Hogan. And yet, the heart of WCW, Sting, remains a good guy and by far the most respected wrestler on the show. Yeah. And both sides of the NWO war for his approval. Mm Mm-hmm. Jericho's disrespect of classic wrestler Boris Malenko is at the heart of another angle, and is avenged by son and current wrestler Dean Malenko. Right. Meanwhile, perhaps the biggest villain on the whole show is Dusty Rhodes, of all people. (laughs) Yeah, right. Who compounds his betrayal of tradition before the show by betraying the new alongside Hall in support of tradition, just not the right tradition. Correct, yeah. And the biggest supporter of the overall organization is actually Eric Bischoff <laughs> yeah. of the NWO Hollywood, who seeks to prove the superiority of WCW in a pointless and stupid challenge to the rival of all three. <laughs> yeah, true. It's a dumb and massively overlong storyline on the show, but the whole Bischoff versus McMahon thing is the ultimate WCW good, other stuff bad story, if yeah. nothing else. The theme goes a bit into the background on 99, but you can still see flashes of it, and again, there's some variation on how the sides are treated. The Steiner Brothers classic act is reunited. True. Yeah. But with one of the two nigh unrecognizable to yeah. fans of his classic self. That's very true, yes. And both as evil heels betraying colleagues to serve their own ambitions. Yeah. Charles Robinson aspires to honor tradition in the form of Ric Flair, but that very figure proves himself unworthy of honor as a raving madman seeking power at all costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, again, figures of tradition come off well, too. We have classic wrestler Roddy Piper that seeks to dethrone the Madden Flair, and even if he's fighting the new big star Goldberg, classic wrestler Sting is still clearly a good guy himself. The final match, interestingly, is actually a war of new versus new. We have Nash and DDP, both of whom rose to prominence in WCW only a few years prior, though both have been around on and off earlier as well. Right. So perhaps it's a sign that what was new has now been incorporated as part of the tradition of WCW. And that theme, I find, is actually solidified in 2000. 
in which we have classic-era wrestlers like Flair and Sting teaming up with middle-era Hulk Hogan and present-era DDP and Nash Mm -hmm. to take on the new blood in the form of, well, the new blood. Yes. (laughs) Now that the previous new guys have been incorporated into WCW's traditions, upholding the company's identity in a melding of what was and what is, a new force is rising to take on the established order once again, continuing the cycle. And just as when that conflict began with WCW versus the NWO, it's now the traditional that is again seen as entirely good and respectful and worthy, while the new wrestlers disrespect it and want to burn it all down. And again, we see the war between the classic and the new extend not just to storylines, but to the company overall, as the world title is no longer seen as something to be respected, no, but as a tool to use to gain attention and is put on an actor, and defended in a match meant to promote a movie. Yes. So for all that the traditional may be upheld and winning on screen, for all that the fans may cheer them, it's the new that's winning in 2000. Until nobody wins less than a year later, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I will say the one guy that muddles that a bit with 2000 is Scott Steiner, because he's definitely part of the traditional on the previous mm-hmm. couple years as part of the NWO Black and White but then he's he's awkwardly aligned with the new blood. Yes. Although he's not trying to replace anybody. So that's the thing. It, it muddles the whole message a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's, it's not the most graceful angle. Yes. As an overall theme, it works. But yeah, when you delve into individual wrestlers' points in it, oftentimes in 2000, it makes no sense. Yeah. As I think we discussed at length on that show. Yeah. So that's Slamboree to me. We have the honoring of tradition combined with the war between that very tradition and the change, the new that's trying to establish itself. It goes from certainty that classic wrestlers are to be honored and respected to a question of whether what came before should be torn down to make way for the new, whether the new should be stamped out to keep everything that came before, or whether the two should be merged together in the end. It's an interesting question, and it's one that's actually very much at the heart of WCW as a company, both its strengths and its flaws. Mm Mm-hmm. WCW was at once a company capable of honoring its history, reinventing its history, and establishing new stars. But it was also a company that was all too capable of discarding its past entirely, while paradoxically holding so tightly to it that it squelched the rise of people with potential. Its past and its future were both blessings and banes. Hmm. When it figured out which was which, it did well. And when it misidentified them, it struggled. Yeah. That conflict is at the heart of the company for so much of its run, and Slamboree brings it to its surface, making for a fascinating series to watch. Yeah, because you have Slamboree 2000, for instance, that makes the people that want to replace tradition the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And I could arguably go either way. I could see them going the other direction, having the established people become bad guys, you know, not wanting to you know, give up their spots, as they would say, and that sort of kayfabe blurring thing they like to say back then. Yeah. We do the NWO. And then we do New Blood. And in neither case do they think about doing it that way, of having the traditional, the historical, Mm -hmm. become the bad. Yeah. They always have the ones that want to change things are the bad guys. And the way they go about it in the NWO and the New Blood is obviously making them the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're not bad guys because they're proposing change. They're bad guys because they're throwing Rey Mysterio face first into trailers or... yes kidnapping Miss Elizabeth or things like that. Yeah, dropping mysterious red liquid from the ceiling. Right, yeah, whatever. Sometimes in the right place, sometimes not. (laughs) It is interesting to think, I wonder if they'd gone on 
would they have ever reached a point where they actually were willing to to reverse that yeah. and say let's do that that plot of the the uprising basically yeah. but actually have the established order be clearly bad yeah cuz from what we know about the reboot of nitro that failed to be because of the whole time warner situation they were definitely going to be about the traditional stars coming back to reclaim the company mm-hmm. that seemed like that was the goal with obviously some newer built up sort of like Booker T really helped them take the center stage, but it was still going to be Sting and Nash and yeah. DDP and such there. So it probably would end up again doing the, we have merged the old and the new, Yeah, but still whatever rises up as new mm-hmm. is questioned first. Yeah. They're very, uh, <laughs> I say this as a United Methodist, but they're very United Methodist that way. Mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> we don't like change. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't be remiss in, in mentioning there's kind of a secondary theme in the series as well. Honestly, probably more than Starcade, I guess. Hmm. Celebrities. Yes. There's a lot of celebrity involvement across this series. I, I can't think of all the ones I was able to think of earlier off the top of my head right now, but we had the one hockey dude in 1994. Yep, that's true. His name escapes me. I know he went by the hammer, but I can't remember yeah. the rest of his name. He's not Greg, that's for sure. They, yeah. Um, they had the two football players in 97, mm-hmm. Reggie White and Kevin Green. Yep. Then in 2000, they have David Arquette. Yeah. I'm sure there's some other ones that I'm forgetting, honestly, but Mm -hmm. those are the ones that spring to mind. But that's, even with just that, that's three of eight shows. Right. 93 and 94 and 95, you have tons of wrestling celebrities as well that aren't currently working for the company, but are showing up all over the place. Right. But yeah, I, I think it becomes an interesting series to watch for a variety of reasons, but definitely that very visible war of tradition mm-hmm. is, is a fascinating thing for the series. Absolutely. Yeah. We've had a look at the Slamboree stats, but now we're going to take a look at some interesting data that I've gathered on the performers who appeared on the shows. You ready for this, Al? Never, but sure. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So first up, we have who appeared as a competitor in the most matches. Any guesses? Hmm. I f- remember, I feel like Sting is on almost every Slambury, if not every Slambury. No, he may have missed Definitely one. frequent. Yeah. I feel like there's a part in the middle he may not appear because of the timing, but he feels pretty consistent across the board. DDP is very similar to that, although his comes a little later, and he miss- does miss the one show having an actual match. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, then I'd say... Probably Flair, even being out, he he somehow makes his returns on that show. Like mm-hmm. 97, he makes his return to the company yep. for that show. So he'd definitely be up there a lot. Hogan appears surprisingly little on this show. Mm-hmm. Only like three times, really, I think. Two matches I can think of top of my head. And I feel like maybe appearance or two somewhere else, but yeah. All right, so you said DDP, Ric Flair, and Sting, right? Yeah, Sting I think that's the most that I can, that I can recall, yeah. All right. So in third place, we have a two-way tie with five appearances each. Okay. We have Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit. I always forget about that. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Both of them had a lot of appearances. That's uh, true, yeah. And actually, in one case, together. That's true, yeah. As a team. 99, I think it is. yeah. In second place, with six appearances, is Diamond Dallas Page. Gotcha. He was on a Battle Bowl show. Right. So he got three matches that's right true. there. That's true. I didn't think it was that way, but yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But in first place, tied with seven each, are Ric Flair and Sting. All right. 
So yes, the the old reliables are yet again the old reliables. <laughs> so which show is it that Sting missed? I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, Ninety seven. He would not have a match on because he's in the midst of his emo hanging oh, out. Oh, of in course. The... Duh. Yep. <laughs> I, that, that makes for a sense. Now that you say that, yeah. But that's matches overall. Who do you think was a competitor in the most main events? Now, to clarify, I'm only counting actual main events. That is the final aired match of the show. Okay. What's your guess? I try, okay, trying to remember main events. I feel like my first guess is still Sting, because I, I know he's in... Three there, at least that. don't think he's not main eventing the next... Yeah, hmm. I'm twitching <laughs> myself if they do that. It's hard, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's got to be top three regardless. I don't know if he is the most, but he definitely appears a lot. Mm-hmm. DDP's kind of climbs up there towards the end. He gets mm-hmm. the last few of them. I feel like Flair's out of the main event more than you might think. Mm-hmm. And then Hogan has the one main event. He would insist that any amount of time he appears in the main event. Well, yeah. Probably contractually. <laughs> That's how that works. Early streak is Vader. He has the first three, but then he's gone from the series, so. All right. So you're thinking Sting? I think, yeah, I say Sting, yeah. Okay. In third place is an eight-way tie. Oh, my goodness. With one each. Oh, okay, there we go. Yeah. We have David Arquette. Uh Uh-huh. Roddy Piper. Mm. Randy Savage. Jeff Jarrett. Kevin Green. Six. Hulk Hogan. And the British Bulldog. Yep. And I just realized that I actually put six, six in my list. I did not intend to do that. I assume that was attention on your part, honestly. I was giving you the credit for that. It's kind of surprising to see Hogan with as many main events on this series as David Arquette. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In second place, we have a four-way tie. Okay. With two main events each. We have The Giant, Diamond Dallas Page, yeah. Ric Flair, and Scott Hall. Oh, right. Oh, sorry. I, I, I forgot the Giants. Yeah, the, the tag movement. Mm-hmm. That, that's, yep. yep. that's what I forgot about. Okay. Yeah, you, you remember him versus Sting, but you don't remember him teaming with Sting. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I flipped, flipped <laughs> yeah. like that one out, yeah. And first place is actually a three-way tie. Oh, there we go. With three each, we have Sting. Yep. Kevin Nash. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. And Vader, because Kevin Nash has the six-man tag. Right. Nice seven, yeah. Then he has he and Scott Hall versus Stick oh, the Giant. Oh, yeah, that's, that's And true. then he has him versus... 99, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, of course, Big Van Vader, as, as yes. you pointed out, the first three shows yes. has all of the main events. He's the anchor, which is appropriate for someone oh, yeah. who dies. Yes. <laughs> Say with all due respect. <laughs> A show isn't just about competitors, though. There's all sorts of other roles to fill. So next up, we'll talk about the commentary team. The most matches called by commentator... Who do you think? Hmm. 96, obviously, that throws the curve off a lot. There's so many d- matches on that show. If I remember 96 correctly, that's Tony Dusty and Heenan, I believe. Yeah, right? Tony Bobby Dusty is 96, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like it's got to be Tony then. Mm-hmm. Because, obviously, he appears on the ones... He, he He's on the last show. Arguably against his will at this point. <laughs> yeah. He sure sounds like it sometimes. A bit of a hostage video going on there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not quite as much as in Ready to Rumble, but... Uh, no, no. Who do you think second place? I think maybe Heenan, maybe? In third place, with 23 matches called, is Dusty Rhodes, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, the 96 curve, yeah. Yep. 
that adds a ton of matches to his to his total, definitely. Yeah. In second place, with 56 matches called, so exactly double Dusty's total, actually, is Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yeah. And in first place, indeed, which will probably be a theme across much of our series. Yeah. With 69 matches is Tony Schiavone. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I said Poppy the Brain Heenan had exactly double, but that math doesn't work out. That'd be 46 if he Yeah, said. yeah. Yeah, excuse me. <laughs> you can do it if you want to write it in. Uh, well, <laughs> I do math good. I'm an English major, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it, it, honestly it's it fitting to do that with the, with Heenan, so it's fine. <laughs> yes, but uh, Tony has actually exactly triple Dusty's total. Oh, yeah, it's twenty three to sixty nine. I am right yes. on that, right? Yeah. Okay, yes. good. <laughs> what about managers? This this one I had no recollection of. I will oh, be honest man. on. I thought of managers much more prominently in our Starcade series for sure. Yeah. But uh, there's some surprising numbers on this. So what's your guess for who managed people in the most matches? Oh, man. I remember. Sonny Eno is probably in there. Because I know he's got, he's got a handful between Dragon. Um, um, other managers. He's, yeah, that's something that I don't think about as much. I can't think of me without, like, going back to actually looking at the matches again. Oh, okay. The only I remember I can recall... No, I'm thinking about it is Harley Race, but I know what his actual number is. But yeah. okay, they give him a few times. Well, these are going to surprise you, okay? Because they surprised me. In third place, we have a two-way tie with three matches managed each: Arn Anderson, oh, and Kimberly Page. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, seriously. Oh, because of um, nice. Is she managing? Do you, oh no, she's not managing GP. She's managing. No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Ed Leslie, that's right. I had the timing of that one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she gets two on uh, Slambury 96, and then she shows up again in Slambury 2000. In second place, with five, Jimmy Hart. Oh, of course. He is all over the place on the on the show with many different wonderful jackets. Oh, right, because on 95 especially, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And in first place, with eight... Colonel Robert Parker. Oh, okay. He is all over the early shows of the series. He has a ton of ton of uh, manager. Right, he'd have two, at least two for ninety six, right? Yeah, because he's managing. Um, was it not? I was at Eden, not Eden. Um, I believe it's Slater. Dirty yeah, Dick Slater. He shows yes. up with yeah, yeah. He gets two there, and then he has actually quite a few appearances earlier on. And he remember brings out Barry Windham to oh, face right. Blair on the one show. Right, because that's that's their tease of Hulk Hogan. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. That comes back to me now. Yeah, you're right. So, but yeah, I I, I completely blinked mm-hmm. on that too. It's like if you asked me on the Starcade run, I could have named a good portion of our list, but yeah, they just I didn't think of managers as prominently on this one. Yeah, that's true. Next up, referees. Who refereed the most matches? Now, I want to note that I'm counting any referee appearance here. So, whether they're the assigned ref came out to replace the ref after a ref bump or came out to rectify a referee's call. All of those are being counted. Any guesses? I mean, Nick Patrick's an obvious one. Something I guess I could say Nick Patrick with or without his mustache. Because <laughs> there, there's a blend there, I think, from the show. So. I, I counted with or without mustache as the same person. Okay, just, just to clarify that. I should start recording mustache appearances, though. That'd be mm-hmm. funny to see how many times he shows up with it and how many times he shows up without it. Yeah. <laughs> what's, the, what's the mustache ratio? Yeah, yeah. For show? <laughs> yeah, I see that. 
All right. Well, Nick Patrick is always a good bet. You are correct. He's first place, but you're going to be surprised by how close it is. Okay. In third place, we have Mickey J with eight. Mm -hmm. In second place, we have Randy Anderson with 18. Wow. That's, that's, that's double. Yes. (laughs) And in first place, we have Nick Patrick Mm -hmm. with 19. Oh, wow. So Randy Anderson very nearly took over there. (laughs) Oh, wow. Goodness. Now, I do have to know, it does change if you count only initial referee appearances. Mm. Instead, Nick Patrick ties Randy Anderson in first at 18 each Mm -hmm. as he loses one replacement ref appearance. That puts Mickey J in second with eight appearances. He doesn't lose any. And in third place, we get a four-way tie as Scott Dickinson, Billy Silverman, Randy Eller, and Charles Robinson all have five appearances as initial ref. Oh, okay. Notably, of course, in addition to one more appearance as a replacement referee, Charles Robinson even had one appearance as a competitor on this series. That's true. <laughs> He's a competitor and ref on the same show, which is probably... Yes. <laughs> that got to be a first, I would think. You, you would think that it would also be against whatever uh, ethics manual referees <laughs> get as well. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the people with a ton of appearances, but what about the people with the fewest? Well, there's 84 people who only show up for a single match in any capacity on a slamboree. Mm-hmm. Though technically there's only 83, since one assigned to a match is Vince McMahon, who <laughs> just doesn't actually show up at all. Yes. Note that some of these people may show up again in non-match segments. I'm not counting those. Right. Of the 83... Two took home an MVP award for their single appearance, and they're not who you would expect. Kevin Green and David Arquette. Yeah. Two celebrities. Five actually took home match of the night for their single appearance. We have Kevin Green and David Arquette again, Mm. along with the British Bulldog, who got both of our votes for his year. Mm Mm-hmm. Fit Finley and Six. Some other interesting people on the list include Tully Blanchard. Vern Gagne, The Great Muta, Road Warrior Animal, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Sid Vicious, and Z-Man, who was all over last series, but isn't even actually credited on this one (laughs) as he's pretending to be Shane Douglas. Yeah, I say, uh, yeah. Do we have Shane Douglas more than, like, actual Shane Douglas more than once? I believe he also... Um, technically, yes, because he interferes in more than one match. Oh, okay. But, uh, but if I was counting just as a competitor, I believe he's actually only a competitor once. Yeah. So un- unofficially, he's two, but officially, he's one. I believe so. Yeah. Last but not least, let's look at who's taken home the coveted Match of the Night and MVP awards. So first up, we're going to go for each host who took home the most MVP awards. So, Al, it's time for the Know Thyself part of the evening. Yeah, okay. Who do you think you gave MVP to the most? You think of all of them, I remember my own and not yours, but I actually don't. I don't <laughs> think of mine that much, to be honest with you. And even going through my notes for the retrospective, I didn't really look through all of that as much as you might think. Well, good. It makes the guessing game more fun. Yeah, I figured you'd, you'd appreciate <laughs> that. It's all part of my plan. Um, obvious ones, the ones I definitely give it to a lot would be Sting or Vader. I remember how many I gave them to. Poor Sting doesn't get the one year for sure because his partner was really terrible. So that, that hurt him a bit. I know Sting's the last one I picked. I remember that. My short-term memory's not that bad, but I do remember that one. I don't remember the rest of them as much. Given how much he's come up in this series, 
DDP might have slipped in with me, but I don't remember my exact numbers. All right. So uh, you actually gave your top MVP choice three awards. Oh, okay. And indeed, it is Sting. Oh, okay, good. So who do you think I gave the most MVP awards to? Hmm. I know you gave it to Raquel, which is the one, the one t- that's only the one time, which mm-hmm. surprised me for that one. Flair's usually a pretty good choice for that, but I don't remember as far as his appearance in the show. I'm trying to think, Arn has a couple matches, but I don't remember if he ended up with those or, as much or not. He has a Flair or Anderson, but I don't recall. It is actually, with two votes, Larry Zabisco. Oh, of course. Right. I really loved his work on the early shows in the series, and I just otherwise distributed my MVPs pretty... Right. You, had, well, you gave him it for 93 for commentary, didn't you? Yes. I, okay. I think I did a joint for him and Shivani for 93 for commentary. Right. And then I did uh, his match for uh, 94. I the Regal. Loved his performance from that so much that I gave him MVP. That's right. Yeah. Paying that part, but yeah, that's true. So, who do you think got the most MVPs overall? Again, Sting is a good one. I know mm-hmm. we both. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna think of that. Piece of all. Going with Sting. Yeah, I'll go with Sting's okay. the same one. Yeah. All right. Well, here we go. In third place, we have a nine-way tie. Of course. We voted for a lot of different people for MVP on this series, so a lot of people got it only once. Gotcha. So with one award each, we have Big Van Vader, Charles Robinson. Dean Malenko, Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero, Kevin Green, David Arquette, Tony Schiavone, and Gordon Soley. Oh, right, yeah. In second place, with two awards, we have Larry Zabisco, the living legend himself. (laughs) And in first place, we have a two-way tie, with three awards each, Sting, and DDP. Yeah, that seems fitting. (laughs) And interestingly, that actually means that all three of Sting's awards came from you. Oh, yeah. I guess so. I'm actually kind of astonished myself that I never actually gave Sting an MVP on this series, but mm. yeah. I was I generally regarded his performance well, just I yeah. guess not that well. <laughs> yeah. I remember in the last show, I gave it to him because he seemed the least affected by the... Right. Everything, everyone is is more dour and less interesting yeah. on that show. He seen at least still be that Sting. He was still Sting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Match of the night participations, then. Now, just to clarify, we're only looking at competitors here, so not interferences or referee work or anything like that. Who do you think competed in your match of the night choices the most? Again, Sting statistically seems like a very solid option. I'd say Vader, but I think, unfortunately, the third main event kind of drops away a little bit. Though I don't think he did badly in that. But then, yeah, the DDP might have been as well. What did I pick my tonight? Yeah. You tell them not super self-centered because I don't remember every single thing I give awards out to. <laughs> I guess it's a good character trait. Um, yeah, I'd say those three. So Sting, Vader, and DDP are pretty solid. All right. Places. Well, in first place for you, again, with three Match of the Night awards is Sting. Okay. Who do you think competed in my Match of the Night choices the most? Well, this guy only had the... The two matches. He only had one actual match. Oh, right, right, yeah. Sorry. I, I'm, oh, I'm mixing the Regal stuff up. Regal was sort of something else on the show. After, mm-hmm. That's what I mixed yeah. up. Okay, gotcha. I feel like it's DDP. I know he's in the last one for sure. He picked... And I think he made it in with the year before, but... 
Yeah, I think I'd go with the safe bet. Okay. Well, it's actually a four-way tie, oh, but okay. you are correct. DDP is one of them. Oh, okay. So with two each, I chose Kevin Nash, Dean Malenko, DDP, and Vader. Oh, okay. So finally, who do you think competed in the most matches of the night, as chosen by the two of us? So, let's see. Probably Sting DDP, then, if it's the volume there. Okay. Third place is a 19-way tie. Oh, jeez. We really distributed our votes this time. Yeah, we sure did. With one each, we have Arn Anderson, Brad Armstrong, David Arquette, Mike Awesome, Fit Finley, Ric Flair, The Giant, Kevin Green, Scott Hall, Chris Jericho, Chris Canyon, Billy Kidman, Rey Mysterio Jr., Roddy Piper, Raven, Perry Saturn, Six, Ray Trailer, and Alex Wright. In second place, we have a five-way tie. With two choices each, we have Chris Benoit, the British Bulldog, Jeff Jarrett, Kevin Nash, and Diamond Dallas Page. All right. And finally, in first place, we actually, again, have a tie, three-way tie, with four choices each. Mm-hmm. These guys were very reliable. We have Dean Malenko, Big Van Vader, and Sting. Makes sense. Now, like I said back in the intro, in honor of our third anniversary, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at some of the stats across all the shows that we've covered so far. Again, all the actual wrestling shows, not including Ready to Rumble. Right. Appearances as a match competitor overall. You got a guess? I feel like it's got to be Sting or Flair. Flair has the advantage of being there from the beginning with Starcade. You know, obviously there's gaps here and there where he's not wrestling. And Sting, basically, once he gets in, in a top appearance, uh, especially he's really reliable. Mm-hmm. And he's appearing since, what, 86 is that first show he's on? 87, I think. Eight, oh, yeah, that's show. right. Is Yeah. All right. In third place, we have Lex Luger with 22 appearances mm-hmm. as a match competitor overall. In second place, we have Ric Flair with 26 appearances. Okay. And in first place, indeed, with 28 appearances, this is Sting. He shows up a little later than Flair, but then he has a lot of shows where he has more than one match. Oh, right, yeah. I think that really helps out his total. Right, that one show where he's in the Battle Bowl and also in the Cable Tournament right. as well. Yeah. All right, appearances as a match competitor in main events. What's your guess? Again, I feel like it's got to be Flair because he has that early lead. Yeah, Sting is main events. He doesn't need too long to get to main events, but he kind of comes in and out of them more than I think Flair does, mm-hmm. at least in the middle years of the show. And even then, Flair kind of sneaks back in like 97 on this series. I feel like it's probably a new MVO guy that might sneak in there as well, like a Nash... But I'm not sure. So, Ric Flair, you're going with your guess? Okay. Mm -hmm. In third place, we have Vader with six. Oh, okay. I think that's a factor of the shows we happen to have covered, but still, that's a testament to his uh, reliability as a competitor and scariness as a big dude. Yes, indeed. In second place, Sting with 11. Oh, okay. 
And in first place, indeed, is Ric Flair with 15 main event appearances so far as a competitor. Nice. As you pointed out, he has his early run on the Starcade series that he is just in there all the time. It's like six or seven in a row, right? I believe yeah. we ended up finding that on every Starcade that he was a competitor, he was in the main event, save one. Yeah. The only match he has on a Starcade that is not a main event is him versus Bischoff. Yeah, but it's Bischoff, yeah. So Flair and Sting changed places there. Sting's got more matches, but Flair's at the top more often. Mm-hmm. So you can probably guess who's in first place on commentary. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. obviously Tony Schiavone. Right. The sheer scale of the win may, may surprise you, though. Okay. But first, who do you think's in second place overall? Hmm. I feel like it's got to be Heenan, because he was a good foil for a lot of people throughout the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, in third place is actually Bobby Heenan, oh. with 102 matches called so far. Wow. In second place is JR, oh, with right. 104 matches called so far, so it's really close. Yeah, yeah, We just happen to have done a good set of the shows where JR is lead commentator. Right, 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 yeah. It was for the entire Russell War series. I think that oh, uh, that's true. Yeah. really bolstered his total. And that, turn- that tournament show as well. Mm-hmm. That 90, I think? 89. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Because he was lead commentator, and he would switch with Tari Funk or Jim, Jim Cornette. Cornette, yeah. Yeah. And in first place is indeed Tony Schiavone with 182 <laughs> matches called. So yeah, almost 80 more matches than his closest competitor. Wow. <laughs> it makes sense, of course. There's a lot more WCW shows taking place in the 90s when he's the lead than in the 80s when he's not. Yeah. But even so, we've only covered three series, so I wasn't expecting the difference to be that huge. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Referees. So looking at all referee appearances, whether they're initial ref replacement mm-hmm. or what have you, who do you think's top? Ooh, uh, again, I'm always bad with the refs, but Nick Patrick's using my go-to just because he's a, like the main referee for a lot. He's definitely all over the place when, yeah. once he comes into, into it, yeah. Correct, yeah. Well, in third place is actually a really unexpected name for me. I was not anticipating this one. Okay. Mike Atkins. Oh, okay. Has 24 appearances as a referee. Second place is less surprising. Randy Anderson Mm -hmm. has 50 appearances. And first place is not surprising at all. Mm -hmm. That would be Nick Patrick with 66 appearances as a referee so far. The positions don't actually change at all if we use only in the initial ref appearances, by the way. Uh, Atkins stays exactly the same at 24. Anderson loses one appearance but stays in second place at 49. And Patrick loses a couple appearances, but retains first place at 64. Oh, okay. It's interesting, considering my mental perception of how many ref bumps there are and things like that, that uh, these refs aren't actually losing that many appearances if I'm yeah. discounting that sort of appearance. I know there's, there's one show, I think it's part of Bash the Beach Recover, where one match is like, all the refs get bumped at some point, so that'll, that'll throw the curve off for you, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and then, um, Starcade 99... That's oh. the big one with Bret Hart and Goldberg with the, whoops, there goes another referee plant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. That one ticked John off so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, MVP choices now. Okay, so by host, we're going first. Al, who do you think you've chosen the most for MVP across all the shows we have watched? I mean, it's got to be... Th- 
I love Vader, but I feel like it's this volume, it's got to be Sting. Okay. You are correct. All right. You have chosen Sting six times. Sounds about right, yeah. Across all the shows that we've watched. And me? Who do you think? Uh, hmm. I don't know if he's top, but DP came as a good go-to for sure. Okay. I want to say Flair, but I'm not sure off the camera how much you you would pick him on a show, but he's usually a pretty solid choice. Yeah. All right. It's actually a tie. Okay. With four choices each, I've given it most to Ric Flair and to Sting. Oh, okay. Do you remember John's? Oh, man. I, I want to say Glacier, but I know it's not right. <laughs> <laughs> He definitely did give it to him once. Yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> for the for, for having a video package yes. on a terrible show. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I couldn't even argue with him about it. No, no, it yeah. was a totally valid choice. Yeah. They got to tell him how weirdly that story played out on, on the on the sea Yes. Oh, here's what this actually was up to. <laughs> Basically not much. Piper is probably going for him. I know you like Piper a lot. Okay. Though he only hit that many appearances, does he? So yeah, I'm not sure. Alright, his is actually Dusty Rhodes. Oh, okay. with three MVP awards for that John. That makes sense, yeah. Because Piper only has the two matches on Starcade, if I remember correctly. We're the 83 and 96, right? 83, 96. Yeah, I don't think he has another match. He has uh, another appearance as a referee in the Whoops, There Goes Another Referee plant. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and all of us together. So who do you think, if we add up all of our votes, who gets the most MVP awards? Uh, I feel like it's got to be Sting. He's just generally a good, good solid pick. And I, okay. I was, obviously, I throw the curve off of it. <laughs> all right. In third place is Diamond Dallas Page. Okay. He's gotten five MVP awards so far. Nice. In second place is Ric Flair, who has gotten eight. And in first place is Sting. All right. A mighty 12 MVP awards for the man of the sparkly jacket. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and half of those come from you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I throw the curve off quite a bit. So yeah, actually, we can tell exactly because I've got them both on this list here. Uh, so yeah, Sting, you gave him six of his choices. I gave him four of his choices. That means John gave him two. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look at match of the night competitors. Again, we're going by host first. So who do you think competed the most in your matches of the night? Solid pick for you would be Stinger Vader for me. Okay. This is familiar. <laughs> yeah. Sting got seven awards from you. For me? Is yours Flair? I'm not sure. Uh, indeed, actually, for me, it is Ric Flair. Okay. Who has six awards from mm-hmm. me. And from John. <laughs> um... Is it Sting again? Because I feel like that's a... He seems like a solid pick overall. It is not, but uh, they do wear face paint. Oh, of course. The Road Warriors. Yep. John gave it jointly to the Road Warriors, Hawk, and Animal four times. Ah, okay. He, he loves the Road Warriors. Yeah. I think we didn't get him to watch their... Isn't their only appearance in the show is uh, 96, right? Um, Hawk has one more appearance. Right. They get together, though. Yeah. But yeah, I think their only appearances together is fighting each other and not really fighting each other. Yeah, yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, all of us together, who do you think has the most match of the night competitor appearances as voted by the group? 
It's, uh, it's got to be Stinger Flare, I would think, then. All right. In third place, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat has 11. Okay. Early shows, for sure, he gets the advantage in that one. In second place, Ric Flair has 12. Mm-hmm. And in first place, with 15, is Sting. Right. So, that's interesting, but one other thing that's really fascinating to me mm-hmm. is Tully Blanchard is still quite high up on the list. He's tied for fifth place mm-hmm. with his eight Match of the Night appearances. Which one is the All Blood show? Is that that right? is 85. I was thinking it was 85. Yeah. Into, yeah. 84 seemed too early. That's the, he throws a curve out because he all picked that same match. Yeah, I believe so. But yeah, it's actually been two full series since the last time we gave Tully Blanchard Match of the Night, and only a few people have passed his total. I really have to wonder if when we start doing some 80s shows again, if he might be able to reclaim the crown. Mm-hmm, yeah, it wouldn't course. take too much still. He's, he's, yeah. uh, he's behind Sting by seven right now. There you go. For completion's sake, by the way, fourth place is actually a tie between Vader and Arn Anderson with nine each. Good picks. And tied with Blanchard for fifth place is Diamond Dallas Page with eight. I think that that's going to break away, I imagine. Yeah, there, there's a good chance that he goes up further. With all the data out of the way, it's time to give some series awards. So each show, we've awarded our Match of the Night and MVP, but now we're going to look at things across the entire series. So to start off, we're going to go for our series MVPs. These are three people in no particular order. So Al, who are your series MVPs? All right, this... Obviously, it should not be a surprise. Those are the things I've been saying. I have DDP. Mm-hmm. You always see his rise throughout the series. Surviving whatever the hell Battle Bowl was, with most of the the attack, I would say, coming out of that, coming out better than most people did in that. Mm-hmm. Basically, solely from his early run, you have Vader. Okay. And, of course, you have, you know who it's going to be, Sting. Okay. All right. For me, I have Dean Malenko. Okay. St. Malenko of the Cloverleaf. Yeah. <laughs> Deserves this for his work alongside Brad America Jacket Armstrong, rescuing me from the depths of lethal lottery despair on Slambury 96. But he also went on to have excellent matches on 97 and 98 as well, including perhaps the biggest pop of his career against Chris Jericho. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to sell his 99 performance short either. Right. Though he stuck in with a crowd in a chaotic match, he had some really standout moments to help give the match a sense of strategy. So he's a reliably exceptional performer, but the series particularly highlighted that for me. Yeah, if I, if I was doing four, I'd definitely have him and mm-hmm. or Benoit for sure. Second for me, I'm going to agree with you, Diamond Dallas Page definitely mm-hmm. takes one of these. His moments weren't as reliably awesome as Malenko's. In fact, the poor guy got saddled with a lot of crap yep. in this series, from having to work his way through the Lethal Lottery and Battle Bowl, to seeing his world title reigns ended in criminally short times, <laughs> to having to face off against an actor for the world title. But through it all, he puts on really strong performances and gives his all every single time he comes out to perform. He repeatedly managed to shine in the middle of moments that should have been disasters. It's a shame how frequently he has to fight through the show ideas and booking to make something good, but he manages to time and again. And finally... Gordon Soley. Okay. The Hall of Fame segments were the highlights of the early Slamborees for me. Sure. And by far my favorite segments in the series. And Soley was a huge part in making those happen, not just on screen, but off. 
the quintessential classic wrestling announcer solely gave these segments the honor and the dignity that they deserved. So it's only right that I give him some honor here. Yeah. It's actually funny how our picks sort of coincide because my pick of Vader and your pick of Soli only appear in the first, the first three, three shows. shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Otherwise, there's, there's not much connecting to the two, but yeah. Yep. I'm sure Soli could manage a moonsault if he wanted to. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can picture Vader hosting a Hall of Fame ceremony. Yeah. Pro- probably murdering most of the yeah. guys accepting awards, but, you know, all the same. I could hear it's Hall of Fame time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, next up, Al, your matches of the series. Okay. So again, three of them in no particular order, and uh, please do name the Slamboree's that they were on as well. Okay. I have the Slamboree 994 main event between Sting and Vader, mm-hmm. which, despite being for the WCW International <laughs> title, and for being honest, it's, the whole situation surrounding is kind of unfortunate because... It's supposed to be a match with Rick Rue. Right. Who sadly he gets his career ending injury and his oddly successful title defense, he still manages to work through that match. But then they had to sort of rewrite the show at the end to have that match. But it delivers, so more than makes up for the chaos of it. Mm-hmm. As far as being a match that gives you a really good surprise as for the over execution, I have the Larry Zbyszko versus Stephen Regal match from okay. 94. Because it's not knocking either one of them, but that's not the match I expected to be as good as it was. Mm-hmm. And then, more importantly, as, I would say as dynamic as it was. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because it gets the crowd reaction more. I actually really expected them to have a strong technical match, but to get the reaction and feel the crowd they do is what mm-hmm. really impressed me. Yeah, they were both on in that match. Really, yeah. really on. And since this show basically running through the 90s, representing the sort of edgier 90s wrestling we're dealing with, I went with DDP versus Raven from Slavery Night 98. Oh, okay. The cage death match. Yes. Okay. It was a better balance of the spectacle and the match than, say, other, other matches, like, you know, the main event of Slavery 2000, yeah. which, obviously, I didn't like what you did, which is fine. And it had a little extra stuff in the match element itself, which puts it ahead of the other big cage match that happened before that, which is the Hollywood Blondes cage match. Right. Okay. Which was also really good. All right. This was such a hard choice. Yeah. There's loads of great matches across this series, and I actually had 15 matches in contention. Oh, yeah, I'm I sure. just marathon through those one night. <laughs> <laughs> First up, I have Dean Malenko versus Brad Armstrong. Makes sense. Lamprey 1996. I will say I held myself to one Malenko match, as honestly, he could have probably just filled up my entire yeah. list if I wanted to. And this one is my favorite of his matches on the series. Yeah. It may not be the one that gets him the biggest pop of his career, that's on 98, but this is an absolute knee-work clinic with truly stellar sequences of holds and moves, bolstered by some excellent selling by Armstrong, who delivers some explosive moves of his own and proves he can hang with the best in the business. Right. This match establishes the Cruiserweight title as the source of amazing matches, and as a bonus, rescues the viewer from absolute boredom mm-hmm. and despair, coming where it does between Lethal Lottery Browns on the Battle Wall show. I will tell you that Malenko will appear in my ultimate card, because you know, I'm not going to leave him up the yeah. card, obviously. The America Jacket's a plus two. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> that bumps it in the top three right there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, second up, I have Regal versus Dragon. Mm-hmm. Slambury, 1997. Yeah. 
one of the finest opening matches that we have ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's an enormously complex match with some stellar storytelling. Regal's repeated attempts at his Regal stretch and the way Dragon will bolt for the ropes to prevent that from getting locked on are real highlights, as are the creative holds both use and Dragon's exceptional strikes and aerial attacks, and Regal's usual excellent facial expressions mm. as well. Yeah. Throw in a genuinely interesting story with Dragon wanting to fight Regal fairly against the wishes of manager Sonny Ono, mm-hmm. and you have a really great watch. The ending does seem a tad flubbed, but not in a way that really spoils anything. No. And even with that... This is one of the most enjoyable matches I've yet seen. Okay. And third, the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, versus Vader, mm-hmm. Slamboree 1993. This blew me away. Mm-hmm. Vader somehow managed to use his own indestructible, unstoppable reputation as a means of building up the Bulldog for all sorts of crazy power stunts by the Bulldog mm-hmm. that made him look like a million bucks, all while never making Vader look weak. No. The match nailed a big fight feel and was a star-making performance for the Bulldog, who showed the crowd that he could hurl a guy the size of Vader, but Vader still looked like a monster and did not lose a step. DQ finished aside, and honestly, it does go well with the story as a sign of Vader actually recognizing how tough an opponent Bulldog is. Yeah. This was one heck of a spectacle. I will tell you, there is a reason that will become clear later as to why I picked the Sting-Vader match as good as it was over the Bulldog Vader match. And now, the awards nobody wants. (laughs) First up, the least valuable performers. So the people that either didn't add anything or actively took away from the shows. With this one, I will let you pick up to three. I I filled out three. I I told you in the build to this, but now I was picking my choices. I got a little creative with these, and I I can defend all of them, I think, though. Okay. Uh, so we're at about one that needs no explanation. The Prisoner <laughs> from Slavery 1993. Choking, choking, and more choking. The fact that uh, the guy has a match, he seems winded and out of breath, oddly while he's choking someone else, is really telling. Yeah. And the fact that it, it makes a bad sting match is such a rare thing. Because even when he had that short squash match as part of the Wrestle War series with the Iron Sheik. Yeah. That was still better than that, especially because the right person won fair and square in that one. This is by far the worst thing match we've had. Oh, yeah. My uh, second choice is Stevie Ray. Okay. There's two, th- two factors involved. For me, in, when he was tagging with Booker T, he was a couple of times, which was a 95? 95, I think. 95, yeah. Where they managed to basically lose a handicap match to... Um, to one half to of the Jerry Sags. Jerry yeah. Sags. <laughs> then, of course, he breaks away and has the abysmal match with Conan. And the other aspect to it is, so, the story of the 99 Slambury, one of them, that is, is how both diners help the other one win their respective titles. They interfere in those matches and they reunite officially. Meanwhile, D.B. Ray is nowhere to be seen to help Booker T <laughs> when he gets screwed over by them. So he's just a bad brother. Aw. <laughs> if he had like a stand-up performance in one of the tag matches and if his other match wasn't so... This, I wouldn't say bad, but it was awkward. They just have no chemistry together. Mm-hmm. That might slip by, but this was a combination of that. And I'm like, and I want to fill three out to just be fair. I'm like, yeah, I think that counts. Okay. Third one is is one I picked because there actually would be 
maybe a Dark Horse contender for series MVP starting out the series, but then it takes such a turn in the later ones, it makes it so much worse for me, because mm-hmm. they're actually strong, and they just get so bad. Oh, okay. Scott Steiner. Oh, okay. When you watch the early shows, he really delivers in those matches, like the tag match, even if it's not that important, that 97 tag match he's really good in. Isn't it Hugh Morris and... Conan, right? Conan, yeah, I think yeah. it's yeah, Conan and Hugh Morris. Right, and he and Rick are both good on the Battle Bowl show, right? actually, as well. Mm-hmm. But then he becomes Big Pop Bump Scott Steiner, and he his last appearances turn into do suplex, walk outside, yell at crowd for three minutes, come yeah. back in the ring, do a suplex, walk outside for two minutes. Yep. And he has not that Buff Bagwell match where a general might want to blame Buff Bagwell for bad matches just by default. But you, you just can't with that. No. Yeah. Because that match is all Scott Steiner beating him up and yelling at run crowd people. It makes the match feel so, so much longer. I can see where you're going with that. When, when you first started with your explanation, I was, I was thinking the other person that you could apply it to is Conan. Sure. He has a really, actually, stellar match on 96. He does, one of yeah. my One of my match of the series contenders, honestly. Sure, no, yeah. Uh, against Liger. But then he has that match against Stevie Ray, and you're like, what is going yeah. on? <laughs> But yeah, no, I see where you're coming from in that. It's just such a sudden turn in his performance where it's like most (laughs) de-improved. Yeah, exactly. Mine, I share your disregard for this one person, the prisoner. (laughs) Yes. I know the guy only showed up once, but if your one appearance is on the first show of the series, and I'm already talking about how this may be in my worst matches of the series, you very much deserve this honor. Mm Mm-hmm. It's worse because I really can blame just him for this. 100%. Sting gave his best in that match, but the Prisoner just did so poorly it didn't matter. Yes. Second up for me, Brian Nobbs. Mm-hmm. Jerry Sags gets a pass for me on this series. Nobbs nearly ruins a surprisingly respectable 1995 match between Sags and Harlem Heat by coming into botch, botch, and botch again on the way to the end. Mm, he like, yeah. totally messes up that ending. Oh, yeah. That's and true. nearly kills Sherry in the process. Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot that. And later, he has an absolute snooze fest against Bam Bam Bigelow on the 1999 show. Yeah. He is part of a kind of fun brawl on 1994, mm-hmm. but that is not enough to save him no. from two bad performances. Understandable, yeah. And finally... Mark Madden. Oh, yeah. There you go. I dearly hope that the character Madden plays on Slambury 2000 is nothing like his actual personality, because the character he plays is an absolutely horrible human being. Mm -hmm. None of the commentary on Slambury 2000 was particularly good, but Madden took a show that was already hard to watch and made it far, far worse pretty much every single time he opened his mouth. Yeah. It's only one show, but it affects the entire show. Right. It's the last taste in your mouth Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah all right worst matches of the series okay again pick up to three okay where we got right off the bat we have as mentioned both by us the prisoner versus sting yep (laughs) because again it's it's the worst sting match it's so bad yeah (laughs) it's so so bad i have to really struggle to think of bad sting matches that we've covered so far because even people like vampiro who he lacks other deficits. I think the match that match was fine. It was it was fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the only other really bad Sting match I can think of is the one that several of us picked on Starcade for worst match of the series, which was Sting and Hawk versus the Nasty Boys. Yes, that that's probably second worst. Going back to 
Starcade though, you have the one where poor Flair's got to wrestle like at least somebody else. True, yeah. And that just that just didn't live. That one at that. least has some extenuating circumstances. Yeah. The thing with this prisoner match, as has been we talked about before in the show, I'm not a big fan of Scott Norton. I don't think he's ruined a match. For me, he hasn't added that much to admittedly his admittedly limited appearances on the sh- the series so far. He's a generic big man. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't really do harm to anything, but he never really. He's benefits. inoffensive. Yeah. So the fact that he was supposed to be in this match, for some reason he's not. It's a whole weird contract thing, apparently. The fact that I had to stop and go, I'd rather watch the Scott Norton match to tell you something. Yes. No offense to you, Scott Norton. Just how I feel. Previously mentioned as well, getting him into this situation, Conan versus Stevie Ray. Okay. It's two guys that can wrestle. Obviously, you have different talent levels, I think. But they just don't work well together. And of course, that ending is so hilariously botched. Mm-hmm. There was like, look away while Rosterio hops on TV Ray and runs the other wing past him and go, oh, yes. what was that? That was weird. <laughs> Anyways. And lastly, for me, I had to pick between the two hardcore matches we had. It's like, which one I found worse. Okay. Because one of them had to be in there. And I had to think, which one for me is the worst? Honestly, the one I'm going with is Terry Funk versus Norman Smiley and Ralphus. Okay. Both of them were bad, and they both of them felt way too long. But there's a certain uh, hilarious charm to the fact they just fully messed up the ending of the Bam and Bigelow Brian Knobs match, mm-hmm. where he just completely misses the table he's supposed <laughs> yes. to be crashing onto, and then <laughs> Bam Bam sort of nonchalantly just takes this just gets the win that way and yes and he even like he completely misses the table and in fact lands on bam bam bigelow yeah who has to no sell the fact that he got landed yes. on by the guy because he was supposed to miss yes yes the 2001 is so much four steps of comedy and Ralphus shouldn't just shouldn't be there period right all right for me again we are in agreement sting versus the prisoner slambury 1993 yeah oh god <laughs> An incredibly boring basic match that somehow manages to be dull even when Sting is on offense, because Prisoner just has nothing other than lumbering around and trying to choke him, and has no idea what to do when Sting is attacking. Yeah. Back when we reviewed this, I said I would be shocked if this match did not show up on my list of worst matches of the series. And just a reminder again, it was the first show of the series. Yes. (laughs) We watched that show, what, now eight months ago, and it's still like, nope, that's really bad. It is that bad. Yes. Second up, Chris Candido versus The Artist, formerly known as Prince Iakea, Slamboree 2000. That nearly made it for me. Holy crap, what a botch fest. Yeah. <laughs> as I said at the time, the match they wanted to perform was okay, mm-hmm. but what they wanted to do was not what they did. No. Which pretty much describes any individual spot in this match as well. <laughs> yes. Very little went right in this match, and some spots were just laughably bad. The mistimed ending could have actually been a mercy had they just stuck with that, but they boldly, foolishly forged ahead. Yes. They tried, bless them, but they failed. Mm Mm-hmm. And third, now we discussed this actually during the course of the week, and I came down on the opposite side as to what I'm going to come down on right now. Oh, okay. Eric Bischoff versus Vince McMahon, Slampery 1998. Yeah. Some, including me earlier this week, might argue that this is not a match, but it has ring entrances, Uh Michael Buffer on ring announcing duty, a referee, an opening bell, and a closing bell, so it counts. Yes. It is a match, 
and it is a horrible, entirely worthless waste of time that exists only for the purpose of padding Bischoff's fragile ego. Yeah. It'd be on this list even if it had been contained to its own segment, but as a bonus, a simply insane amount of time is spent building up to it, dealing serious harm to an otherwise good slamboree. Yeah. It's a petty, silly stunt that was meant to make the WWF look bad, but only succeeds in making Bischoff look like an idiot, and WCW look like his personal plaything rather than a legitimate rival to the WWF. Agreed. (laughs) But for the series overall, we've got some other awards to hand out. So first up, Best Commentary Team. Which commentary team did you enjoy the most? First, I'll start with the trio, and then I'll explain the show itself. It's hard to go wrong with Tony, Dusty, and Bobby, mm-hmm. no matter what. I almost wanted to give it for 96 Slamboree, like them trying to do their best to make it entertaining. But mm-hmm. The one I went with was actually 97 Slamboree. While it wasn't my favorite show in the series, because it felt like a big televised house show, where some storylines have did happen, but otherwise it was like not as important. Because mm-hmm. I think they're trying to find the balance of how much big stuff should happen on TV for ratings, how right. much should happen there. So it's an enjoyable show, as we discussed, but it feels skippable, unless you just want to enjoy the matches themselves. But with them, they had so much fun calling that because mm-hmm. of the sort of carefree house show kind of vibe of it. That that they felt the most unshackled, I guess you could oh, say, maybe. Uh, yeah freest, I'd say, doing that. We all know that Tony, Bobby, and Dusty is my favorite WCW announce team. I think I've made that abundantly clear. Yes. But, for this series, there is one team that comes out ahead. Oh, I know it is already. That is Tony Schiavone and Larry Zbysko from Slambury 93. The two were just in their element, with Tony flashing back to a time when he was just a fan and hadn't yet entered the business himself, able to talk about the wrestlers he watched before he became part of the act, and Larry pulling out all the stops to honor the past of professional wrestling and praise his fellow performers, and occasionally himself. Very often himself, yes. Together, the two pulled out countless tidbits and were full of facts and praise about wrestling history, and it was a joy to hear them having so much fun taking a trip down memory lane. Yeah. And definitely, as... As noted, close second, Tony Bobby Dusty, and I would probably agree with you. I think 97 was the stronger show for the for the trio, mm-hmm. but Larry and Tony just seem to be having such a golden good time going back over their own history. Going back and rewatching the main event of that show, for a comparison, I absolutely can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Best promos or non-match segments. So were there things other than matches that stood out to us across the series? And you can name up to three. All right, so I have the early on bit where they have Sting come out to explain why he's not just taking the title, the bit with the Tonic Vader. I thought really worked. Yeah, yeah, I remember liking that one a lot. Because that helped explain why this match is happening as their main event, and it's, it's necessary legwork they had to do, mm-hmm. and I thought it was done quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, secondly, I have the non-match, but almost a match bit from 1997 Slamboree with DDP and Randy Savage. Okay. Which is basically there to promote future matches, but was an enjoyable segment overall, I thought. Mm-hmm. Put the two two big stars on the show, even if they didn't have a match for them in that, in that situation. Okay. And lastly, I had someone forgotten this because it's connected to a match that I don't really want to remember all that well, but the debut of The Master 
at <laughs> Slamfree 1995. <laughs> nice. After a very forgettable match with Ed Leslie, aka the man with no name, versus Kevin Sullivan, we finally get to see the face behind the strange, booming voice. That is Sullivan, my son. Oh my gosh, yes. They try to sell it like it's the hushed, shocked silence of the crowd, but it's it's more the hushed, huh, of the crowd. <laughs> yes. They generally don't know what's going on here. I remember both of us just being so enjoyably surprised by that being on the show. Yeah. Too, that neither of us had any clue yeah. that was where this started. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't quite count... Um, the giant making his early appearances where he kind of walks out, because that happens during a match. So. Yeah, fair, fair. And it's sort of like, who's that guy? And then he walks back out. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that stands out for me as well. I was at war with myself on this set. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of fun non-match content on this series. We had uh, some great 1995 promos from Flair, Vader, and Anderson. Right. And a wonderfully lunatic promo on the same show by Hogan and Savage. Oh, yeah, that's true. We had fun promos on 1993 from Red Bastine and Bugsy McGraw, uh, where they're making fun of Eric Bischoff. Mm -hmm. And The Crusher and Ox Baker, uh, him of the incredible facial hair. Yes. We had uh, that great promo from 1994, where Luthez and Fern Gagne made clear their disapproval of hardcore wrestling. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was good. (laughs) I still can't believe they brought them out after that. I don't know whose idea that was. Uh, That's a bad idea. We had Jericho's ring announcing. Yeah, yeah. We had Saturn's awesome rebellious speech on 1998. Mm-hmm. There's plenty more throughout the series, but you may know where this is going. Okay. My top three non-match segments are Hall of Fame 1993, uh-huh. Hall of Fame 1994, yeah. and Hall of Fame 1995. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> the honor paid to the legends of pro wrestling was the best thing about this series by far. Mm. And none of the rest of the non-match stuff could overwhelm the genuine feeling of these segments for me. Right. They were brilliant, and I really wish they'd been continued all the way through. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, because it happened three years in a row. You can see them figuring out how to do this mm-hmm. segment better as well. Yeah. First of all, they come out to the ring, and then they like stand there holding their trophies. By the end, they figured, let's have us on stage that can come out. Yeah, and, and we can show some videos that, yeah. you know, probably, and have them give a speech and stuff. Yeah. You can yeah. see it sort of worked out throughout there. Didn't I, I really, I really thought about it. And I was just like, okay, maybe I can, maybe I can drop one of them. And I was like, which one do I drop? And I, I just, I couldn't pick one. Right. So that's what decided it for me. I was like, I either have to cheat by doing two completely separate lists, or I just have to admit to myself, this is the best non-match stuff. I will say, and this is kind of a, an arguably a first world kind of problem, but <laughs> I miss the more segmented aspects they had on the original WWE Network before Peacock. Yes, me too. There's a lot of good stuff they do with that, and I'm not getting the whole, they cut things here and there, or change music stuff, because that was happening on the network as well. Let's see what we get. But it's harder to go, oh, where is this interview segment here? Because mm-hmm. it's just big clumps on the screen where the lines are, where the whole segment and match together is. Yeah. So it's hard to, where there was definitely more segmented before. You could watch interview segments. That's where I probably have a slight advantage because I do the overall show notes for every show. Exactly. I just yeah. scrolled through my show notes. and No, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree on that. It's easier to find matches because that tends to be where they put the ads. Yes. <laughs> right now, it's structured purely around the matches. And I also miss the ability to search for matches by people's yes. name as well. Definitely an inferior service. Yeah. Not all matches are the usual sort of singles or tag match. So, what's your favorite gimmick match on the series? 
it was a struggle be- picking between either the tag team cage match from the first Lambrie, Dos Hombres, and uh, the Holy Blondes, or the DP Raven one. As I said before, picking the the latter for my match of the series, that the little extra stuff they had with the hardcore elements and using them in good ways, because DDP's match binder, I'm sure, had everything segmented exactly where you pause, then use weapon, especially comparing to the hardcore matches where it was just constantly pick up whatever's near you and hit someone with it. For location of garbage cans, see figure 17A. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and maybe it's, not, maybe it's not fair to compare the random hate with trash can lids matches to that, but there's a lot of overlap there. Because they worked into the, the match, that one I felt executed a more complicated gimmick match in a way that worked. Mm-hmm. For mine, I will admit this one's a little bit thin on the gimmick side, but I think it still counts as it is a no DQ mm-hmm. match. Flare Piper and Green versus the NWO no DQ six man tag. Mm-hmm. Okay, Slimbury nineteen ninety seven. It's a no DQ six man tag match with a football player in it, so I'm calling that gimmicky. Yeah. <laughs> And boy, was it fun. Flair and Hall make excellent faces at each other. Piper stands up in the face of NWO mockery. Nash looms large over everyone in the match. Six throws some great kicks and maybe does the biggest sell of Flair's chops that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And Green hurls his entire body at anyone in sight in a way that really did make me wonder if anyone had clued him in that wrestling was not, in fact, a real fight. It's really an amazing watch, and everyone seemed on in the best way possible. Yeah. The crowd was super hot for it, and the ending was picture perfect. Mm. I really enjoyed this one, even if I do pity Six for having to take some of those leaping forearms from Green in his face. (laughs) What was that great great bit where the four of them are in the ring, and the people you can't see at this point are Green and Six. And then suddenly, Green walks into the hard camera shot in the lower frame, because he's outside the ring. And he's just double arm throttling Six. He's yes. like walking forward with him. Like, oh, there he is. <laughs> Six at some point got assigned as Green's manager for the for the evening. You keep track of him and make sure he's in the right place yeah. at the right time and let him just, you know, pound you in the face whenever yeah. possible. I forget, was that one they treated as otherwise a regular tag match, right? And it's not a tornado match officially. Yeah, it's not a tornado match, but it is no DQ, I right. believe, is the, is the rule on it. Now, that's a big, the obvious question. I think probably ask the question yes. to the match itself. If you come in illegally, what's the consequences? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. So As the only consequence is your pins aren't legal, I guess. So the ref yeah. has to still only count the legal man's pins. But yeah, it's always a question when you try and mix tag rules and no DQ or cage matches and stuff. Is yeah, that's always a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. See your your favorite match, the four way tag team match. <laughs> we we haven't gotten one of those yet. Have no, we? no. Oh, I look not forward to that at all. Yes. All right. Do you have a worst type of gimmick match? I do. Battable. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you want to look at it as the tag matches, that's fine. The random tag matching is definitely is a gimmick of it. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Or just the Battle Royal, which I think maybe the Battle Royal is probably the second best Battle Royal on its own. I think the first one maybe gets a little head because it's saved by the ending when you get the good sting. When you suddenly get to the singles, yeah. singles match. But it, but at the same time, that's so, so long True. before you get to that point. Yeah. And it makes so little sense. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one, remember, where you have to be thrown from ring one into ring two yes. and then thrown out of ring two, yes. but not back into ring one yes. to be eliminated. <laughs> Which sounds like a John Matry gimmicking, but it's an actual <laughs> yes. stipulation of a real match that happened. Oh, go. More than once, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I I just think that's entirely fair. You could even look at it, like you said, is the entire gimmick or even just looking at the lethal lottery part of it. Lethal lottery tag match is a type of gimmick match. My exact note here is battleable, all of it. Yeah. I do have to ask as a curiosity, do you feel like you have a particular one of the lethal lottery matches that you would say is the worst? Uh, hmm. I try to block a lot of that out, honestly. <laughs> I Maybe this, the first or second match with um, Doug, Duggan and um, who's he with? Well, he's definitely... Uh, Wall Street. He's, yeah, Michael Wall Street. I was going to... Mike Rotunda is his actual name. I know they try to stick stories in it, but the match itself, parts of it's actually pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Likewise, and I feel bad because the people involved, but the whole Eaton and um, Slater pairing, their, th- their styles didn't really mesh with their opponents or anything okay. like that, yeah. If I were defining one, I'd probably pick the uh, Road Warriors one. There is that as well. Just because it completely fails to use the gimmick. I can absolutely see that. Best is obviously where Public Enemy beats Ric Flair and Randy Savage. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's definitely the shortest. Yes. <laughs> the later days hardcore matches were awful. Sure. Bigelow versus Knobs on 99 and Smiley Ralphus versus Funk from 2000 were just terrible, terrible matches. Yeah. Both were just incredibly boring and consisted of nothing but guys mindlessly hitting each other with objects with no sense of plot or strategy. Between those, if I'm forced to pick just one of the matches, I would go with Smiley Ralphus versus Funk, like you said earlier, yeah. for making me see much more of Ralphus than I ever wanted to. Right. Even outside of that aspect, he didn't bring anything else to the match itself, either. Yeah. He just hung around watching Norman Smiley get beat up and then occasionally delivered a woeful trash can shot yeah. that Funk just ignored. Yeah. <laughs> There was at least some humor in that, and at least the one part when he no-sells it completely. Yeah. I think agitated by the whole thing, but yeah, it was definitely the worst match of the two, for sure. So here's a fun one. The best performer with a single slambery appearance. Who was it that you really would have loved to see again the most? There's a lot of good choices in there, as looking at your giant list of uh, many, many people. Yes. In fact, double the meaning of life, so that's a, that's a lot of people. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I think for me, because his first match was so good, and unfortunately I know how history does not work in his favor, so we don't get more of them, it's the British Bulldog. Okay. That's a very, very uh, fair pick, yeah. Yeah. He's exceptional when he first shows up on, mm-hmm. on there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of good options for this one. Some really big names show up only once, as we discussed. And I really should probably say British Bulldog as well. Because he was completely awesome. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually going to say Yuji Yasuryoka. Ah. I could almost give him most improved despite him only being on one show because I had this real arc with his performance. Mm-hmm. At the start of the match, I'm totally thrown by his style, not expecting him to wrestle the way he did. He, he fought like he was a bigger wrestler. Yeah. But he really put in a lot of character work. He had some standout moves, and he told a good story with Rey Mysterio. Mm-hmm. So by the end, I really thought he was quite good, and I was really disappointed to hear that he wasn't in WCW for very long. Literally, this is that one match. Yeah, yeah like, that's that's his only big match. Yeah. And it really felt like he would have been a good addition to their show. Yeah. So I'm going to give it to him. But I'm, I'm thrilled that you picked Bulldog, because I was really yeah. thinking I should pick him as well. So I'm glad one of us did. Well, as you know, I do... Literally anything I can to avoid trying to pronounce his last name. <laughs> yes. So it's also helpful for me in that regard. Good point, good point. It's just a mouthful. Most improved. So is there anyone you thought was not too great when they first showed up, but later on they really improved and they turned things around? 
So I'm not going to say he was bad at the beginning, but if you're looking at the series as a whole, it has to be Diamond Dallas Page. Okay. Because he's a guy, in his storyline, he's not even supposed to be in that match. Mm-hmm. They wrote out a guy with a fake injury to put him in the match, and then he finds you know, sneaky ways to get through and survive. Then he introduces the thing that Bettable really needed the whole time, pinfalls. <laughs> yes. That would have helped. We assume we sped the process quite a bit. By the end, you have him as full, cocky, bad guy heel, trying to be his own flair in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in the 99 match. As overbooked as the ending of that is, he's still really good in it, mm-hmm. as, I, as I said at the time. And obviously, he's seen as the guy that could book the insanity of the triple cage match of Doom around. So, if nothing else, by the company standards, he is absolutely most improved. Okay. Yep. I am making, I think, a kind of similar choice, but not the same person. All right. But just like you, I want to emphasize that this guy's actually pretty good already when he shows up. So it's less that he improves and more that he just finally gets to be himself on a later show. Okay. My pick is Chris Canyon. Okay. So in the early shows, he's saddled with kind of a silly gimmick, though he makes the most of it. And he only makes brief appearances. He gets a short match with a quick DQ ending, Mm -hmm. a post-match attack, an interference spot. So it's not until 2000 that he actually gets to show what he can do. Mm -hmm. And when he does, he's excellent. Yeah. Once they finally let Canyon be Canyon, he proves himself an innovative and interesting performer with likable personality who brought some moments of honest-to-goodness enjoyment to Slambury 2000, which is an achievement. (laughs) Yeah. With his match with Mike Awesome. Mm -hmm. And he's actually a good promo as well. Yeah, he was. Absolutely. And now, the best and worst slamborees. So I want you to pick your worst three, and then your best three. Okay. So, uh, worst three, I've got Slamboree 2000, because it's just so poorly booked. Yeah. Across the board. As we said on the show, the whole theme of it is taking interesting people, Hogan, Flair, what have you, and like literally sucking all the interest and color out of them and their attire. Yes, quite quite literally yeah. taking them taking all the color out of their performance. Flair has no robes. Flair is wearing you know, his dress pants and everything. And they're all black. And yes, Hogan's F U and B stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's not enough good matches to elevate it, and other than this year bizarre spectacle of the ending mm-hmm. match. Obviously. Slamboree 1996 is on there, because it's Battle Bowl. We've made that very clear. It's not a good show. That said, it has a few highlights, but you really have to endure a lot to get Mm -hmm. them, whether it's the match you like with Dean Malenko and uh, Brian Armstrong, or the main event, even. All three singles matches on that show are good. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's a little bit here that was just, just not enough to get across. Yeah. All three singles matches are good. But there's 15 matches on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 12 matches that you have to slog through to get to those. And in fitting with the somewhat original theme of the series, I have to pick a worst one of the Hall of Fame one. I try to be fair with that. So for me, the worst one of those is 95, I think. It's the one that kind of strips back the Hall of Fame stuff so much. I can see that. And there's enough... So so to not good matches on there as well. I think it's less on there's less on there for me. Okay. Um as far as best slamberies, again I stated it's not the most important storyline wise, but nineteen ninety seven Slamboree is a fun watch. Yeah. It's a fun, enjoyable show. There are some stakes, but otherwise it's just there to be enjoyable. Uh the best balancing of the two I thought for me 
1998 Slamboree. I okay. thought that delivered really well throughout it. And I'm still a little torn because there's parts on both shows I don't like. So I'm kind of torn between picking 93 Slamboree or 94 Slamboree as the best of the Hall of Fame ones. Okay. I can go back and forth on them, honestly. Probably a little more towards 94, but I could see strong case 93, depending on when I look at it. Yeah. You had a little bit more problem with the matches on 93, as I recall. Yes. Uh, so for my worst three, I have Slamboree 1996. Battleable. Yeah. Battleable show, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just an unholy number of tag matches. And while most were actually kind of acceptable on their own, they were just far, far too similar to each other in concept. And due to the sheer number of them, none had any time to breathe and develop into anything more interesting. Yeah. It's incredibly important in the rise of DDP, and it has some really, really good singles matches. In fact, all of the singles matches on it were in contention for my matches of the series. But the Lethal Lottery is just lethal to your enjoyment of the show overall. Yeah. Slamboree 1999. Okay, yeah. After a fun but botchy opener, this one falls off a cliff Mm -hmm. with some truly awful matches and just never really recovers. Yeah, I see that. Later matches on the show can be some fun if you're able to give them a chance, but it's hard to do so when you're in such a foul mood from watching the abysmal match two and three, and nothing's ever really strong enough to pull you out of that Bachwinkle funk. Yes. Add loads of interference, overcomplicated finishes, and confusing rules, a bizarre performance by a normally solid commentary team, and an absolutely insane number of completely pointless video packages. Mm -hmm. And it just comes out to a confusing mess of a show. It has its moments, but you really have to hunt for them. That's 1999 WCW in a nutshell. Yeah, pretty much. And Slamboree 2000. Mm -hmm. It is an improvement from 1999 on the promo and video package front, but it's a downgrade from an already bad show in almost every other way. Okay. Commentary is awful and frequently offensive. Mm-hmm. The matches are filled with botches. It has to be the botchiest show that we've watched for Let's Go to the Ring. I think so, yeah. Angles are just stupid. The biggest one is frequently, and admittedly slightly unfairly, credited with the demise of the entire company. Yeah, yeah. As we said on the show, it's unquestionably boneheaded, but WCW putting the title on an actor did not kill the company by itself. No. It did plenty of other stupid things in 2000. But it definitely contributed. And even if the rest of the show had been awesome, this would have been a strong contender for worse slam breeze based purely off of that. Yeah. What if you consider, again, we talked about before, the beginning of this series is let's honor the champions and formers mm-hmm. of the past. Now here's our world champion, David Arquette. Yeah. It stands out. And the rest of the show was not awesome. So here it is. True. It's also worth noting, by the way, that 1999 and 2000 are the only Slamborees which had zero matches in contention for my matches of the series. Oh, wow, yeah. And now my best Slamborees. Slamboree 1993. The first show established the really wonderful Hall of Fame concept and paid honor to the legends of pro wrestling. How much you like it will depend quite a bit on how much you like the Legends content. Agreed. Particularly the multiple matches they get on the show. But for my part, I found it a lot of fun. And even if Bockwinkle Funk was admittedly overlong, I still actually enjoyed finding the bits of complexity that those two actually worked into their match. I just wish they'd gotten like half the time. Mm-hmm. Other than Legends content, we got a ton of mostly fun matches with only one really bad match and one that's not good but is over in a flash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sid Vicious versus Van Hammer is yes. like one move. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's a really fun show, and it honors wrestling history. 
I made no attempt to distribute my choices, mm-hmm. so Slampery 1994 also gets a vote from me. Okay. Similar to 1993, it's just a fun show that's very respectful of wrestling's past. It turns back the Legends content a bit versus the prior year, but still ends up a very good combination of past and present. Literally, in the case of one of the Legends matches, which pits past star Larry Zabisco versus current star Steven Regal, and serves to prove that both are great. Mm-hmm. The present wrestler content is frequently really good, with again, only one match that I thought was actually bad. It feels almost like the evolution of the formula that they were establishing with 93, mm-hmm. making everything just a touch smoother. Yeah. It's probably a little more towards that, I think, of the mm-hmm. two, but yeah, I think it's your point. And finally, Slambury 1997. Yeah. While this lacks the Hall of Fame content of my other favorites, I think this is the best pure wrestling show on the series. Mm-hmm with very good matches, some from an action standpoint, some from a character standpoint, and many from both. The promo content was very light, but the matches were strong, and we even got some great performances out of celebrities, with Reggie White and Kevin Green both putting on really fun shows. It's just plain fun to watch. Yeah. If I were recommending one show from this series and just telling you, put it on, watch it, you'll have fun, it's the one I'd pick. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Finally... In honor of the Hall of Fame ceremony, I would like us each to make a suggestion what 1980s WCW performer, or Jim Crockett Promotions as well, should be included in a hypothetical 1996 class of the WCW Hall of Fame. So, Al, who's your suggestion? All right, so he does actually appear as one of the legends on the show, but is not inducted to the Hall of Fame. Okay. Magnum TA. Okay. I mean, I don't think I have to explain that. It's Magnum TA. You should be in there. Yep. If they'd done 96, you definitely, I feel like it would have been in there. All right. We have an interesting situation. Uh Uh-huh. Because my choice also is Magnum TA. There you go. We really loved him when we saw him, but we only got to see him in his full wrestling capacity one time. But he did remain a strong personality in future shows, and he's someone that I really hope we get to see again when we go back to that era just was an incredible performer the, yeah. the time that we saw him uh, against Blanchard and his promo afterwards so wonderfully intense. Yeah. In the interest, though, of us having multiple suggestions, mm-hmm. I'm going to make one more suggestion because I did have a second one in mind in case okay. we pick the same one. All right. I'm going to go with Ricky Steamboat. Oh, yeah. He's also all over the promotion in the 80s, mm-hmm. has some excellent, excellent matches, yeah. is a stellar performer. And even though he does come back in the 90s as well, I consider him more yeah. uh, that era of performer, and I think there's no debate that at some point he would have ended up in the Hall yeah. of Fame. Because if memory serves, his career, unfortunately, for a while, anyways, ends in 94, right? Yes. He's about to, he's going to wrestle um, Austin, and then, yeah. and he's going to come back until like 2007 or 2008 with that match, and then follow-up match with uh, Chris Jericho that surprised a lot of people. Right. And a lot of his big, big, big moments are 80s moments. Yeah. Like the Flair Steamboat series that everyone thinks about. That's 89, right? Yeah, I believe so. So yeah, I, I could absolutely see the argument that if they got a 96 one, you would have an extra year separating his unfortunate mm-hmm. retirement, and he might maybe in more of a mood to take a Hall of Fame thing. Then we have time to really think, okay, now I'm, I'm definitely retired, mm-hmm. at least, you know, yeah. for now and doing that. And admittedly, not everyone that was in the Hall of Fame was even fully retired. I mean, Dusty Rhodes gets it and goes on to have more matches after that. Yeah. Not as frequently, yeah. but... And uh, Terry Funk gets in it one year after being a part of major angles in, yes. the, in there, too. 
In fact, I think, if I remember correctly, Dusty's last WWE match is 2007, I believe. Yeah. I could, like, I see Blanchard in there if... Yes. In his mind, he was not retired. That's the thing. Right. Yeah. He was wrestling way into the late 90s as well. Yeah. As Dusty Rhodes would put it on, I believe, 94. I, I'm not a legend. I'm in my prime. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten that promo in my list as well. That was actually really fun. That was, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly thrilled that both of us thought of Magnum TA first. I was looking at him like, I'm like, he must have been picked, right? And I went through, no, he wasn't picked. Yeah. I couldn't even pick her name, but it would be nice if they had a female former. Yes. They could also induct it. I think they do induct one, maybe, or one or two. I don't think they actually induct one. They, um, they talk they, about it. Like, they welcome some out to the ring in some of yeah. the opening ceremony stuff, but I don't think yeah. it has an actual induction. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's like, there's like a reference to like Mildred Burke, I think her name is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it must not have been inducted then. Okay. Yeah. But that'd be nice to see as well. That would be, yeah. We've given our awards and analysis. But there's one more thing we'd like to do here to have some fun with this. Our ultimate Slamboree cards. So, as a refresher, here is the rules for ultimate cards. Each of us will design a Slamboree card featuring eight matches, drawn from the actual Slamboree matches. We can only use each performer as a competitor once. So someone can show up as a manager or a commentator or interference or some other role on other matches, but you can only use them once as an actual competitor. Correct. So for instance, if you picked Sting versus Giant from Slambury 96, you couldn't use any other match where either was a competitor, but you could still use Lex Luger in another match because he's only a manager in Sting versus Giant. That's true. You can use any match in any position. You're not required to pick an actual main event for your main event. Opening match is the tag team match, Dos Hombres versus the Hollywood Blondes, the tag titles. Okay. I enjoyed that match quite a bit. Yeah. Even, you know, the fact that it's fake Shane Douglas, it's still very <laughs> enjoyable. They that final dozy do um, counter-inning as yeah. well, which I liked. Uh, following that up, I have the technical match of Larry Zbysko versus Steven Regal. Mm-hmm. Big change from that sort of chaotic crash match you had there. Following up with Dean Malenko versus Jeff Jarrett for the U.S. title, which was a solid yeah. match. Because I felt like I need to have legend content in some way, I picked what I thought was the most economical version to have one match, basically, to have oh, okay. and cover it. Uh, the six-man match with Dick Murdoch, Don Morocco, and Jimmy Snuka versus Wahoo McDaniels, Blackjack Mulligan, and Jim Brunzel. Okay. It was a fairly short match. Everyone came in, could do the moves they could still do. They got the pop for their appearance, and they got out. And, and it was pretty fun. No, it, was, yeah, it wasn't a bad match, yeah. absolutely. But I guess the most people in there... Like I said, this right amount of use for most of them mm-hmm. to come in and do their move, and everyone's happy. And number five is a match that I can't leave them off the show, and it was actually a really good match. So I have Eddie Guerrero versus Ultimo Dragon. Okay. Having my second gimmick match of the show, I have the DDP versus Raven Hardcore Cage match from yeah. number 98. And then I have a double main event, which means, of course, there's no main event, as people yes. have to say. But regardless, and I can kind of make this work. The headcanon for this is that this is less of a, um, so much as they're both fitting titles, as they're basically building up to a match between the people that survive these matches. Okay. So that's why I can have the world title appear twice. Okay. But not the same people. I have Vader versus the British Bulldog. Okay. Which suddenly is for the WWE world title. And I have Sting versus the Giant, which is also for the WWE world title. Okay. Going back, that's why I included the really good Sting Vader match because I wanted to have both on there mm-hmm. and I couldn't, so I might compromise here. The other advantage of this is 
So remembering who remembering who wins these matches, you have Vader who changes title by DQ, and Giant who wins through lots of shenanigans. So that means in this theoretical show, we have a match between Vader and the Giant. Nice. To look forward to, not really. That that would actually be really cool. Yes. Sadly, timing never worked out for that match, to my knowledge. So the fact that I can pretend like it happened for this makes it a better. Yeah. Especially if that was happening in the 96 Giant period, where yes. he's like super agile. Mm-hmm. That, oh, that'd be cool. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to mention one other thing that we mentioned was picking one of the Hall of Fames for the show. Uh, yes. Uh, so for me, I have the 95 Hall of Fame. I think it's the most streamlined and has, has a nice little twist at the end where they give Sully's induction mm-hmm. we didn't, was not expecting. Okay. There are a lot of similarities between our cards. They're I not imagine. the same, but there's a lot of similarities. Okay. So I have as first match... Arn Anderson versus Alex Wright, Slambury 1995. That's a good one. Just really liked the, like, establishing the new guy performance there. Sure. For my Legends match, I did just decide to call this one my Legends match. Okay. Larry Zabisco versus, versus actually, I almost called him William Regal, sorry. It's a hard Larry Zabisco versus Stephen Regal, Slambury 94. Mm-hmm. Then I also picked Hollywood Blondes versus Dos Hombres, Slambury 1993. That's just a stellar, stellar match. Yeah. Fourth up, Dean Malenko. Versus Brad Armstrong, Slambury 1996. My favorite of the Malenko matches. Yeah. I should say, I also really liked the Jarrett match. Yeah. Uh, that's excellent, but mm-hmm. this was just... My- oh, no, yeah. I understand the place it has for you, absolutely. Uh, at that point, I decided my Hall of Fame ceremony would take place, and yeah. that I also picked Slambury 95. I agree it's the strongest of them in terms of presentation, and it's the one that honors Gordon Soley, so mm-hmm. I really felt like that one needed to be on there that moment and his reaction to it stick with me yeah and will stick with me forever Dusty delivers the the surprise form as well really yeah. well i thought fifth the bowery death match ddp versus raven i agree that totally deserves a place on the card mm-hmm. as just a really unique gimmick match yep six i had the british bulldog versus vader slambury 1993 mm-hmm. seventh Let's get some really uh, fun, chaotic action in there with Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, and Kevin Green versus Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Six. Mm-hmm. Slambury 1997, six-man tag. Yeah, because he's squeezing that in mind. If I and that gets uh, the celebrity involvement in there, oh, which I wanted true, to, yeah. sure to do. And finally, the Giant versus Sting, Slambury 1996. Mm-hmm. And in my case, uh, the justification was slightly different on Earth 9300. This was for the WCW International World Heavyweight Championship, Mm. the way that Sting Vader was in 94 in our reality. So that explains why it's able to be on the same show for uh, world title. (laughs) I mean, Mike could easily have the classic, you know, champion strip the title, then comes back. I didn't lose a title. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You know, that all works. Yeah, I, I wanted to try out various themes of the show, and I think you kind of had the same idea in mind. I, I went for Honor for the Legends with Zabisco versus Regal, mm-hmm. getting over new talent with Anderson versus Wright and Sting versus Giant, and celebrity involvement with Flair Piper Green versus the NWO. Gotcha. You might notice that there's absolutely no matches on there from Slambury 1999 or 2000. Mm-hmm. It's probably not a surprise. Yeah. I did, I will admit, briefly consider the Triple Cage match from 2000, but I think DDP versus Raven in the Bowery Death match was a better way to get DDP on the card. Agreed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of mine are 99-2000. So, Al, you said you found a uh, list of the matches that were on, this was like a best of Slamborees? So, long ago, before we was this even an idea we were doing... I was at a thrift store somewhere, and I found a VHS tape. It was the best of Slamboree. 
Okay. This is when I think we were st- we started watching them just together, but wasn't a podcast thing. I still have it, so I went through it. I figured I'd see how much overlap is on their Best of Slamboree versus ours. Okay. And also, just like ours, for different reasons, there's no consideration for 99 or 2000, because the tape was released before Slamboree 1999. Okay. So, the show had not happened yet, so there's no way they're on there. They have seven matches. Mind you, it's basically a clip show format, because it's an hour... Okay. Because they did not spring for the EP tape, the, <laughs> the SP tape. So it's just about an hour to show and talk about a bunch of stuff on there. It's sprinkled in with Mean Team doing introductions and occasionally wrestlers inducting the matches that they think are important oh, okay. on there. They have the chaotic tag match of Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan against Nasty Boys. Okay. They have Sting versus Vader from Slamboree 94. Okay. They have the main event of Slamboree 95, the tag match of Vader and Flair versus Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. All right. Because, of course, Hogan's got to be on there somewhere. Well, yeah. <laughs> Unlike us, they have the, as in kayfabe, picked by the winner of said match, they have the Battle Royale portion of Battle Bowl, <laughs> picked by DDP backstage. I'm not sure if that, I would ever agree that's a best of Slamboree, but it's definitely one of the most important moments yes. of Slamboree. Uh, they have match you picked, the Flair Piper Green vs. NBO match. Okay. Unlike us, they have the Randy Savage versus Bret Hart match. That I'd actually forgotten existed until this very moment. Yes. <laughs> which, in the story, is picked by Randy Savage, which is odd because of how it plays out. But Yeah. I think it has some impact on picking the, the tag match as well, because Hogan could not be bothered to appear on this tape anyway. Mm-hmm. So Savage has got to do that as well. And lastly, they have, for the main event of their tape, Raven vs. DDP in the Bowery Deathmatch. Okay. So more up than you might think, actually. Yeah, there, there's, some, there's definitely some similarities there for at least matches we liked as well. Yes. So I'm trying to think back over. I don't think there's really any absolute stinkers on there. No. There's a couple matches we didn't like as strongly, but... 95 is overbooked and has a silliness to it. Because, because it's 95 Hogan match. But it's still a reasonable performance. No, yeah, yeah. I remember us saying, like, we were afraid that it was going to treat Vader like crap, but yeah. he actually still feels like Vader. He does, it. yeah, yeah. Arguably the worst thing on there is anything with Battle Bowl, I suppose. But yeah. yeah. But at least they're highlighting just the ending of it, so. Yeah. <laughs> now it's time for some re-gimmicking. Each of us has been given a match from the other's card. And we have to give that match a new gimmick or stipulation that would turn it into something new. So for me, Al provided Lord Stephen Regal versus Larry Zabisco from Slamboree 1994. This is the Queen's Favor match. Okay. This is a Falls Count Anywhere match and can be won by pinfall or submission. However, only a member of the peerage is permitted to attempt a pinfall or put on a submission hold. Commoners like Larry Zabisco are simply unworthy to achieve victory on a noble's battlefield. Oh. Not to worry, though. A noble must have honor, and therefore, by the grace of the most righteous and glorious queen or reasonable facsimile, filthy peasant Zabisco will be given the opportunity to earn his way into the nobility by retrieving three items hidden around the arena. A ceremonial robe, a coronet, the small crown not to be confused with Cornet, the little trumpet or wrestling manager. Yes. And a banner bearing the coat of arms of House Zabisco, designed for him by Vernugania. Which I assume has two golf clubs on it. Uh, probably, probably, yeah. Yeah. 
intertwined with the laces of those boots that he had for 18 mm, years. Yeah. He talks about. Or if he's going to really rub it into Verengane, he'd have the ADB title on there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is mine, by the way. Last champion. But Lord Regal has set devious traps around these <laughs> items with Sir William ready to trigger them. So should Zabisco dodge the pitfalls, wall-mounted swinging folding chairs, and scepter launchers, and retrieve the items, then he must make his way to the entrance stage, where the Queen, or reasonable facsimile herself, will grant him a noble title and welcome him into the peerage, making it possible for him to actually win the match. Okay. But, as Zabisco takes the items to the Queen, or reasonable facsimile, she is kidnapped by a masked figure, and Zabisco and Regal must temporarily put their differences aside to rescue her. The masked figure is ultimately revealed to be Terra Rising, who ah. reveals his real identity, Jean-Paul Levesque, a nefarious Frenchman who tried to take his opportunity to strike at the very heart of his English foes. Mm. With newfound respect for Zabisco given his help, Regal himself appeals for Zabisco's entry into the nobility, and by joint agreement, they finish out their match in a more gentlemanly form in the ring. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> For Al, I provided Diamond Dallas Page versus Raven from Slamboree 1998, the Bowery Death Match. Okay, so here in WCW, we've had single cage matches. Mm-hmm. We have had double like side by side cage matches, and we've had triple cage matches where they're stacked one on top of the other. Mm-hmm. However, we've not had a triangle cage. Okay, a triangle cage is two cages side by side like War Games. Okay. But there's a section separating them with a barrier and doorways going from each cage. Okay. One doorway is a straight-through no peril. However, the other doorway has a mysterious figure in it. Someone who will block your progress if you try to okay. get through. So you got to pick the right door to get from the front cage, which is the one facing the entry ramp, the second cage. And you can't skip this because there is no way to get out of the first cage through the top or through the sides. Okay. Full enclosure. Yes. Okay. It's got a roof and everything on it. Hopefully Sid Vicious is not involved. No, no. (laughs) The reason why you can't escape the first cage is we have to commit fully to the gimmicks of these people involved. Okay. So the first cage, facing the front, is DDP's cage. So if you try to break your way through the front, it's a problem. There are sharp diamonds embedded across the walls of the cage. Ah, okay. You're going to hurt yourself going to break through that thing. Yeah, yeah. So if you get through the second way, it's the only way to get out to the top, because you have a smaller cage stacked in the middle with a nice floor on it. The second cage, which we have to get into, is full of media players, and fitting with my favorite spot from the match, which was Raven using a VCR as a weapon. (laughs) So the second cage is full of VHS players, record players, and even those weird multi-disc changer machines that look like laser disc players because they're so big, but just hold like six CDs. Speaking of, I assume there's a laser disc player in there somewhere as well. I mean, I don't really want to damage something that rare and special. But I mean, WCW would. Yes, they, they would. <laughs> so that's your hardcore cage in the bottom. So if you can make your way up to the top, you have to get to that final cage to get the prize. Because you can't win by pinfall or submission. Okay. You win by retrieving the Diamond Raven. <laughs> I assume you proceed to kill your opponent with the sharp diamond beak of the Raven. Correct. <laughs> okay. And I will post this on the group, but I didn't manage a drawing for Bob in person to see. Okay. 
without the diamond stud in the wall, so you can't break through. Yep. yep. And the multimedia player. That, that is some wall. stunningly good artwork. Out. Thank you, you. You are truly the next Picasso or reasonable facsimile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was drawn as I am picturing the match in my head, sitting on my desk over there. Nice. The Diamond Raven is my most proud achievement. Yes, yeah. I, I honestly, I've, I have an image of that in my head right I know, now, right? actually, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> Once again, we also sent a match each to John. Strap in, folks. Oh, yeah. It should be good. I gave him, I gave him a juicy one. <laughs> All right. From Al, John received the Hollywood Blondes versus Dos Hombres from Slambury 1993. You ready for this? Oh, yeah. He calls this a plethora of pinatas. <laughs> okay. Says, it's expected that Dos Hombres would come to the ring in Mexican-inspired attire, but it comes as a surprise that they show up as multicolored papier-mâché otter and goat. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. They dance around and unveil that they each have their own croquet mallet and a cricket bat to bust up the competition. Okay. But we cut back to an earlier scene in the locker room where they're picking out their costumes. After they leave, the Hollywood blondes show up, and the screen goes dark. Back at the ring, the blondes show up in their own piñatas, a llama and a lion, and head toward the ring. They all stare each other down, and the ref says, the match can't start until they take the stupid costumes off. (laughs) But they have other ideas on how to get them off, and they all start beating each other up with their weapons, (laughs) knocking confetti out of one another. Nice. The Hombres still, of course, have their mask on underneath the costumes to maintain their gimmick. Of course, yeah. Other than that, it's actually a straightforward match in the cage. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> now, I assume the Bonds use the lion as an homage to the MGM lion. Pro- probably. That's, that's yeah. a fair bet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> From me, John received Flair, Piper, and Green versus the NWO from Slambury 1997. Gotcha. I also want to note that he expressed a great deal of love for Kevin Green and proposed that he be inducted into the Road Warriors. <laughs> I, I could see that, yeah. I forget what name he was proposing for him, but uh, yeah, he, he really enjoyed his performance. I, I kind of like Road Warrior Kevin. <laughs> I kind of do, too. So for this one, John says, it's a 1950s schoolhouse rivalry. Okay. Some of the greasers, the NWO, come on, check out that oily hair, he says. Fair enough. Are picking on some of the doo-wop pops, a trio that plays at pep rallies. <laughs> Let's not worry about the age requirements here, he knows. No, no, no. Everyone is dressed in 1950s attire, All their intros have also been updated with record pops and hi-fi sounds. Nice. The NWO theme is a bit rockabilly, and Flair's also Sprock Zarathustra is redone masterfully as a polyphonic acapella. Oh, very nice. <laughs> The doo-wop pops all arrive in normal robes before the match starts, and the NWO's leather jackets and chains look pretty normal for them. Yeah, that's true. The ring has sets of lockers on the outside that are filled with books and papers to slip on. Mm-hmm. Of course. There's wooden desks to plow into as well. The referee explains that they have consented to settling their scores tonight, and instead of racing for pink slips, they'll be fighting by the flagpole. There's no countouts outside the ring, and there are three evenly spaced, full-size lockers between the stairs and the entryway, and a flagpole in the very center of the ring. The winners have to lock up or knock out the other team, and run their themed flag up the flagpole. Okay. The ref walks around the ring and collects the pink slips. There you go. Flair is the first in and reveals that he's wearing some sparkly-lined tweed pants and a flamboyant red, red and white Hawaiian shirt. 
There you go. Green is the next in the ring, and he has a teal letterman jacket and what looks like a bowling shirt and light blue slacks and black and white wingtip-looking shoes. Very nice. And Piper's the last in and has a huge grin on his face. He drops the robe, and he's wearing a tartan kilt that has been modified to look like a poodle skirt. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I hope it's a poodle skirt. And it is. <laughs> I was praying for that. The greasers almost pass out laughing at him, making fun of the skirt. Piper repeats, it's a kilt. That's true, it is. They joke around, and Piper walks to the middle of the ring and moons them, and ticks them off. So the match starts with everyone starting in the middle, and they get thrown out of the ring and start bashing each other's heads into lockers. Mm -hmm. The winners will get the other's rides to keep, and are shown riding off after the match. (laughs) Very nice. I think the Piper in the poodle skirt makes that, Mm. (laughs) totally. (laughs) Now I'm picturing the three of them in the car... Uh, flying into the sky like the end of Greece. Yes, definitely. I that's how I that's, that, yeah. that's definitely required. Yeah. Wow, that was good. But wait, there's more. Oh, yes, of course. So I knew it was unlikely to go on either of our actual cards, but I couldn't pass up the chance to see what John could do with the triple cage match of Doom from Slampery 2000. Of course. He calls this breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> of course. Tesseraction. <laughs> The lights go dim. A single cage lowers from the ceiling, anchored at its corners, leading to the ceiling, and one sturdy-looking bar at the center top that appears to be holding most, if not all, of the weight. Oh. There's a slight hissing noise as several smoke machines turn on along the ramp and under the ring, blanketing the arena floor and ramp with a thin layer of fog. Four referees on motorcycles stream down the entry ramp and position themselves at the four corners of the ring. All the motorcycles idle their engines and turn off their lights. Oh. The announcer says in a detached voice, We are not going to find out who is the greatest heavyweight of all time, but who is going to be the four-dimensional heavyweight champion of all space and time. Ooh. I kind of feel like Randy Savage should be in this match, actually. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. Carl Sagan's voice... Naturally. (laughs) ...booms over the loudspeaker and is cut into a quick version of Flatland. One motorcycle uses its headlight to replicate a point, which then turns into a line as two motorcycles turn on their lights and face each other to represent two dimensions, with a line created by the smoke and headlamps. And finally, all four turn and make a white outline of the ring, forming Flatland. Okay. Rather than going into the full explanation, the lights on the ring come up, showing Jarrett, Arquette, and Paige all lying down and pretending to be in a flat world. They deliver their opening exchanges, and there's a pause, and the motorcycles glide into an adjacent corner, and the refs each dismount and grab chains that were attached to the dangling cube and hold them as they get back to their motorcycle and anchor it to a post near the audience. The announcer says that we need to move from 2D flatland into the real world, and the lights come up, and the trio stand and explain that they have to ascend the lines connecting to the Tesseract above to win the title for all space and time. Okay. At a predestined time, they all start climbing the chains from three separate corners. The lights go out and strobes flicker, showing them moving toward the cage faster and faster as they near it. The lights go out as they near the top, and four manual spotlights focus on the cage, and the four chains from the ceiling are now gone. (gasps) The motorcycles go in a circle around the darkened ring, headlights out. A robotic voice, not too unlike Carl Sagan, says something along the lines of, Now folding space and time. (laughs) 
The spotlights go out as the cage starts to spin, and 2D life-size cutouts of Paige, Arquette, and Jarrett appear to be plastered against the inner walls of the cage when the spotlights come back on and are yelling quietly through their own microphones. <laughs> okay. After about a minute of this transition, the cage touches down on the ring, and the lights flicker on and the cutouts are gone, replaced by all three of them inside the cage looking quite dazed. They fight it out to be the last one standing. The match is sponsored by PBS and reviled by wrestling fans for forcing them to learn. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I never expected for John to submit an idea that actually did require me to look up Carl Sagan videos nice. <laughs> to, to fully understand what the heck he was talking about. <laughs> but yeah, I encourage you guys, if uh, if anyone's unfamiliar with the Carl Sagan Flatland concept, uh, please feel free to look it up on YouTube. It's freely available, apparently. Yeah, and is a kind of interesting explanation of dimensions. <laughs> wow, yeah that uh, that one <laughs> blew me away there. <laughs> yeah, it's, no match in any series will live with that. Now. No, no, no. That's that's. Uh, I think we've peaked. We we only have downhill to go from here, Al. Ah, <laughs> uh, It's about right. Yeah. And that wraps up our coverage of Slamboree. It's a medium-length series, but it packs in a ton of content and changes. So, what have we got coming up next? Well, first up, we have our bridge show. We had all sorts of ideas for this, but then the thought came to us. There's a certain show that was mentioned during this series. A very unusual show. Yeah. In a very unusual place. Mm-hmm. That's right, everyone. Eric Bischoff was so proud of WCW and New Japan's partnership with the totalitarian regime that he posted it to YouTube. He did. So we are taking advantage of that generosity to review Collision in Korea. Mm-hmm. And now, our next series. You pushed this thing too far. Hey, I thought we got this resolved. You know the horsemen. There's only one way to settle this. The horsemen gotta get reunited. We got a bigger mission in front of us. It's WCW Spring Stampede. Sunday, April 6th, live and only on pay-per-view. Call your cable or satellite company to order now. Next up is Spring Stampede. Running from 1994 through 2000, it covers five shows. Wait, hold on. Yeah, it takes a few years off after the first show, oddly enough. So, like, let's do one show, uh, let's see how it goes, and feel there. You may recall us complimenting? Definitely mentioning. <laughs> the 2000 edition of that show during our Slambury 2000 review. Now it's time for us to take a look at that wonderful show in full, along with the rest of the series. At least we've got some time to build up to it. I definitely need to ready myself for that one. Mm-hmm. But what other things can we expect from the series? Well, I looked up some of the matches, so here's what we've got. All right. We've got Flair versus Steamboat back again. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Diamond Dallas Page will face off against Randy Savage in a battle of the three ring binders. Nice. Rey Mysterio Jr. duels Ultimo Dragon. Ooh. DDP's first ever world title win. Oh, yeah. Hogan and Nash versus Piper and Giant in a baseball bat on a pole match. Okay. Jimmy Hart versus Mancow. Yeah. Seriously, couldn't they have just gotten Mantor? No, I don't know. And Al, you've waited three long years for this moment. Uh oh. La Parca 
gets a match. Hell yeah. <laughs> I know he's getting MVP already. You don't care what else happens. <laughs> the pure joy on his face here, folks. Mm-hmm. I wish you could see this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so again, our upcoming releases are in November, Collision in Korea. And in December, the start of our new series with Spring Stampede 1994. So get ready to saddle up, and we'll continue our ride through WCW history. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Absolutely. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. (laughs) 